Hey everyone, and welcome, dear listener, to this episode of Security Headlines. My name is Philip, and I will be your guide throughout this episode. Joining me today is a person that blew my mind the first time I saw his talk at DEF CON. I was watching the latest DEF CON videos, and this random guy gave a talk about, about this end-to-end encrypted file sharing platform that he built called Demonsaw. The project just grew and become bigger and bigger, and suddenly it had a fan base. People were using it and adopting it more and more. Much like Neo in the Matrix, he's a developer with a hacker word floating around him, and it's sucked him in. Much like Neo in the Matrix, he's a talented programmer, and his name is Mr. Anderson, but his first name is not Thomas. Joining me today is the amazing hacker, developer, founder of Demonsaw. It's EGI. How are you doing today, EGI? Great. Thanks, Philip. That was a very kind introduction. I appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, it's, it's really fun to have you here, um, personally, as a... Kind of, uh, I don't want to say fanboy, but uh, follower of Demonsaw for uh, for a while. So it's it's really fun to finally have you here. Oh well, thanks thanks for inviting me. It's great to be here. So uh, yeah, so uh, everything you said is is pretty accurate. Um, you you summed up my uh, experience and uh, and, and Demonsaw, and uh, it, it's been a lot of fun. It's been almost five years. It's hard to believe it's been that long. Yeah. But before we jump into all this tech and Demonsaw and all other things, uh, could you walk us through how you ended up here? What was your journey that led you to technology and why technology? Yeah, so that that's a great question. I was, um, I grew up, I I grew up in a family. My father's an electrical engineer, and okay. in fact, he, he's just recently retired. So. He, he started his life as a mechanic, fresh out of high school, and then he went into electrical engineering, and he later got his master's, his undergraduate and his master's. And so I grew up in a home where my father understood the value of computers and technology and engineering in general, and he did not let me have an Atari. So he didn't let me have an Atari. He didn't let me have a Nintendo. Instead, he bought me computers. So my very first computer, it was, I barely remember using it, but it was a VIC-20, which was the computer before Mm. the Commodore 64. So the the computer I grew up in around was the Commodore 64. So he didn't buy me an Atari. He didn't buy me an Intellivision or a Nintendo, but he bought me a Commodore 64. And so really it forced me to figure out how to play games on the Commodore 64. And at that time, games were expensive. I mean, they still are expensive. In fact, uh, the, uh, the next-gen prices of video games are going to start at $69.99 in the U.S. And uh, usually that maps almost directly to, to euros or, uh, or pounds. So they're very expensive now. You know, I mean, even 60 euros is a heck of a lot of money for video game. Yeah. Um, so I, I was a kid, you know, this was, I was eight, nine, 10. I didn't have money for video games. So I had to, uh, I had to figure out, well, how to, how to play games on these things. So a lot of that was things like CompuServe or, you know, I mean, to date myself, you know, BBS is, oh. uh, and so this was way before the internet. So this was all Telnet based stuff. And this was mm. CompuServe. And this was like really early, like almost ARPNET type days. Um, oh. but, but I was forced to understand computers and, uh, when I was eight, my father gave me a 65, I think it was a 6502 programming book. So I started teaching myself assembly. Now I'm by no means very proficient at assembly these days. Unfortunately, you know, things like C++ and, and OpenGL and, and things like that have, have taken precedence. You have dogs too, that's awesome. Um, 
But uh, so, so I, I started learning that as a kid and, and tinkering around with BIOSes and operating systems and, and um, typing in games myself. You know, back in the uh, mid to late 80s, I used to, to get magazines like Byte or Compute or, and, and they, would, they would list all the code. Yeah, I think it was um, GW Basic or, or some sort of basic programming language. And you would type it in and you would type in every single line. And then at the very, very end, you would save it to a disk and you would try to run it and it would never work. And so you have to go back line by line by line and debug it. It was horrible. But that's what I did in my childhood because I, I had nothing else. I could either ride my bike, play soccer, hang out with friends, or uh, type in programs. So, so I understood what made up a program. I understood the really sacrifice. I mean, if you really sum up my childhood, it's really sacrificing time for something that you value. And, and that that really is the mantra that I think kind of propelled me later on in life. But, but it started there. It started with Commodore 64. It started with BASIC. It started with 6502 assembly because my dad wouldn't let me have an Atari. He said it was a waste of time. It was a waste of brain power. And you know what? As much as I love video games and, and went on to make some of the greatest video games ever made, I, I think he made the right decision. I mean, I would have never learned programming had it not been for my father. Wow, that's uh, that's funny that you mentioned the magazine because I actually, I think it was around a week ago I found a, a bag of old magazines with the, they, they were filled with like assembly tutorials. It was really fun to read. It was yeah. like because nowadays it's like you, you want to learn programming, you know, you find these Python tutorials and then when, and everyone thinks assembly is so hard these days. But in the magazines they're like. Oh, this is the easiest thing ever. It's just assembly. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, yeah. And that's uh, somehow everything's always easier, at least seems simpler when you're seven or eight or nine, you know, when you don't have yeah. the worries of mortgage and rent and anything like that. But, but yeah, it's, uh, it's kind of been an amazing journey that started that, that way. So, so really, I have my father and my mother to thank because had they bought me an Atari, I, I would have never learned the pain and suffering that one has to go through to create a program. And, and I think that, and I fell in love with it. And, and that's the other point is, you know, if you don't love, and I tell people this all the time, people come up to me and they say, how can I be a programmer? And, and here's why they want to be a programmer. Mm -hmm. They either love it or they want the money. And so about half, about 50, 50% of the time, people come up to me and say, you know, I, I'm, I'm doing this XYZ job. I don't love it. I hate it. It's just to get me through college. It's, I, I can't get a job out of college. I got a computer science degree, but you know, I, I want to program. And, and they say, I want to make, uh, you know, $100,000 or more each year, you know, mm -hmm. rather than $30,000. And, and I tell them, I say, you know, that's great. There's a lot of money to be made in programming. There is compared to other disciplines. I mean, not everyone starts at a hundred thousand a year. A lot of, I mean, when I was a programmer, I started at uh, not even 40,000 a year. And that was a ton of money. Like I, I was like, uh, I was a, a very happy 22 year old. Like that, that was tons of money back then. Um, but I tell them, I say, here's the thing is, yes, you get paid a lot of money, but if you don't love programming, you know, if you don't dream in code, if, if you don't <laughs> love spending 12 hours in front of an IDE or, uh, you know, or running command line scripts, you're, it doesn't matter what they pay you. You've got to love it. And, and I, I think today it might be a little different because you can be a programmer 
and you can write, you can be an HTML programmer or CSS programmer or JavaScript programmer or React Native or, and, and you can avoid a lot of the painful parts of programming, like backend development or, you know, multi-threaded programming or networking or security. Um, and you can be perfectly happy in life and, and there's no problems with that. And, and being a UI programmer doesn't necessarily mean you are better or worse than a, a middle tier or backend programmer. Mm -hmm. But the, the stuff that I love is always the stuff that most programmers are scared of. It's this, you know, and I wasn't, when I worked with Rockstar, uh, Rockstar Games for five years, and you'll probably ask about that. You know, I, yep. I was an engine, engine programmer on GTA 5 and Red Dead Redemption 2. I was mm -hmm. one of a handful of people. I never wrote UI code. And, and there's nothing against that. You know, I, I'm not a type of person who, who likes to get in the argument of I'm smarter than you because I write C++ and, and, and you know, you write uh, MVC type front end code. No, no, no. Everything's important from yep. the UI to the UX to the middle tier to the back end. But what excites me is the scary code, the, the stuff that scares 99% of people that that people look at and they have no clue what's going on to me. The more chaotic the code is, the scarier the code is, the more I'm in love with it. Um, <laughs> because okay. I, I've, that goes back to me being a seven-year-old and, and looking at a Commodore 64 and a five and a quarter inch floppy disk and thinking, how the hell am I going to get this to play the game that I'm probably not even going to like. So, um, so yeah, I think, I think overall, if you love programming, this is the best job in the world. But if, if you're in it for the money, it's the worst job you can possibly ever take on because it's, it's unforgiving. I mean, as you know, there are days you fall asleep at night and the worst thing you can do is leave your keyboard having been defeated. I mean, it destroys everything in your life. It destroys your relationships. Yes. It destroys yes. your sleep. It destroys your emotional state. It's like the best thing you can do is leave your keyboard on a win. Otherwise, it's self-destruction. And Unfortunately, there are many nights when you have to leave the keyboard at 4 a.m. in the morning yeah. knowing I just can't figure this out, you know, and just walk away. And that's the worst feeling in the world. I'd rather be dumped by my girlfriend than walk away from the keyboard knowing I was defeated, <laughs> oh, having wow. worked on a bug for a week, like and literally feeling like, you know, because it's an obsession. It, it really is. But if you love it, man, it is the best rush in the world. It really is. Absolutely. I mean, the rush you get after you spend several hours just debugging a problem and nothing works. And then finally you <laughs> you figure out how it works. And it's, yeah, the, the rush you get, like you say, it's it's truly a, it's truly a, a lot of dopamine that gets. Yeah. <laughs> it, it is. Body. It is. You don't need you don't need drugs. You don't need alcohol. You don't need anything <laughs> else, man. When you uh, when you when you find a vulnerability or you get your code working or like in my case, when I found the first Blu-ray device keys, like I, I can't it was it was probably the happiest you ever feel in life. Like it's better than sex. It's better than drugs. It's better. It's better than making money. Um, like the, the feeling you get with like, I'm the only person in the world that knows this yes. and I'm about to release it and destroy a bunch of things that are beautiful. Like, like, and that's, that's one side of the equation, right? That's the dark path, right? That's the, you know, that's the dark side of the forest luring us astray, but yeah. it's very tempting. 
And it's, it's part of who we are as hackers and programmers. We all have the darkness, we all have the light, and we all hopefully find ourselves somewhere between the two extremes. But it's tempting. It's very tempting. I, I won't lie to your listeners and say, you know, with great power, you always follow the thin road, the, the narrow road. No, no, no. Sometimes the more power we have, the more tempted we are. And sometimes yeah. we make mistakes. Sometimes we drift a little too far one way or another. Um, but that's part of the journey. That's part of understanding who we are and how we fit in this universe and what type of programmer or hacker we're going to be. And at the end of the day, you know, if we make the right decision to do good rather than do bad, then um, we're going to be more effective because we've made the conscious choice to not go the wrong direction and, and do the right thing. And, and that's, that's important. We want people who have been tempted and resisted or have been tempted, not resisted, but come back to the fold, understanding that they're not going to be so quick to be fooled again. Because those are the type of freedom fighters that we want for the internet and, and, and the future of cryptography and, uh, and basically protecting our privacy. Totally. Something you, uh, you ran by there was the Blu-ray stuff. Do you want to yeah. touch upon that? Yeah. So, so there is a... Uh, you know, not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not plugging another podcast, but there is a, uh, a, uh, Darknet Diaries is a, a site that did a very thorough interview of, um, back in 2007 when I hacked Blu-ray, uh, encryption. <laughs> and, uh, it is, you know, I mean, it's, it went into extreme detail about 35 minutes of this whole period of my life. It's, you know, it's Darknet Diaries. I think it's .net. It's a great podcast to listen to, but it goes into all the ins and outs of my journey at that time. But I'll give you the quick summary here. Basically what happened is I was not a hacker at this time. It was 2007. I was working as a security architect at American Express managing their security portfolio, you know, a very nice job. I made a good amount of money rolling out their access and identity management systems. So authorization, okay. authentication, uh, interior development, you know, and I was architecting this. So it was, it was really a lot of fun. It was a great place to be, but I was bored out of my mind. Yeah. You know, and, and that's just me being young. That was me being, you know, in my, you know, twenties, you know, just me being stupid and young and, why were you bored. bored because of lack of things to do or uh... well it, it was it was very it was very fortune 500 so okay. a lot of me a lot of meetings i was one of the youngest people in, in on the team and you know i was just immature i mean we we all have been there in our 20s you know we think we're so smart we think we're you know, we think we know so much more than we really know. And yet yeah. it's only through wisdom and experience that we realize how foolish we were in the past. And this is cliche, but it nonetheless is truth. So I was just, I was just young. I was just young. I should have been more patient. And I, I was just um, anxious. I felt like, you know, I'm halfway through my twenties and, you know, I'm wasting my twenties. You know, and I'm just sitting here at a job that I could be at if I'm 40 or 50 or 60 and doing nothing that matters. You know, it's 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 the same vibe you get in the current millennials, you know, that are now in their mm -hmm. mid 20s. And they're thinking, oh, my God, what am I doing? I'm becoming my parents. Well, to be honest, if, if we were to become like our parents, 
you know, that would be a very good thing for most people, <laughs> you know, parents like, you know, my father and mother that took care of me and instilled in me the sense of engineering. There are far worse things than becoming our parents. But nonetheless, you know, that was my feeling. I was just, I wanted to do something exciting. I, I wanted to enjoy my 20s. Well, so I, um, I bought an, I did what a lot of 20 year olds did. I bought an Xbox 360 and, mm -hmm. you know, I was playing video games. And then, of course, you get bored with that. So the next thing I do is there is this new uh, addition to it called the HD DVD drive. And I thought, oh, this okay. is cool. You know, 1080p video. This is kind of interesting. So I bought one of those. You know, I had a great job throwing 300 bucks at this thing was no big deal. So I mm -hmm. bought one and I plugged it in. And then I started researching the Internet and I, I found that, oh, you can hook it up to your computer. And I thought, oh, this is interesting. You could actually play high def movies on your computer, which at that time was pretty unique. Like now it's like, okay, of course, you know, you just download the torrent and you're done. But yeah. um, so I played around and of course you had to find the Toshiba drivers and you had to hack it. And one thing led to another. And soon I found uh, forums like Doom 9 and other forums where you could, <laughs> you could get information. And I don't even know if Doom 9 is still available, but it, it, was, uh, it was popping back then. And so one thing leads to another and I finally get it running and the Toshiba drivers installed and, and I can actually browse contents of it. But I found all the files were encrypted. And I was like, okay, this is weird. So I started looking into that more. And then I thought, well, I don't really have time for any of this. I just want to play a movie on my computer just for fun. And I did. And the problem was my monitor uh, was a slightly older monitor, like two years old. And it didn't support the newest HDCP handshake that enabled the 1080p video to play from the HD DVD drive to my computer, uh, to the monitor. So what happened was the software down the resolution to 480p. And wow. so keep in mind, not 720p, 480p, the same quality as DVDs. So I had spent all this money on a $300 HD DVD drive tinkering in my evenings because, you know, I was bored and I couldn't even watch the videos I bought on the resolution that I bought them for because my monitor was too old. And I said, this is bullshit. And I had this moment of epiphany where I was like, this is crap. You sh screw you for punishing me for doing what's right because I don't have a monitor that's less than two years, that's, you know, one year old or less. And so at that mm -hmm. moment, I decided, you know what? I'm going to do something about this. I'm smart. I'm in my 20s. I'm unstoppable. Let's figure out what to do. And less than two weeks later, I actually wrote a bunch of code that allowed me to extract the keys and publish them online. So, so keep in mind, so we went from a moment of consumerism where, mm -hmm. you know, perfectly legitimate. I, 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 you know, I bought all this stuff legally, legally using it yeah. and the software down res the output. And that triggered me, you know, in 2007, people didn't get triggered. They got pissed off. Now they get triggered, but yeah. you know, I got pissed off because I thought, how dare you treat me like a criminal because of something I can't control. And it was that moment that I decided, nope, you're not going to win. I'm going to do something about this. And that was when I realized the hacker spirit was alive and well in me. The programmer spirit, the tinkerer, the engineer, the hacker. And I said, nope, this is bullshit. I'm, I'm going I'm to fix this situation. 
and and I and so I spent the next ten evenings figuring out well how how am I going to do this? I know nothing about AACS encryption. I know nothing mm -hmm. about Blu-rays and HD DVDs, and and so this is really where it gets really funny. At American Express, I was currently we were writing Java code, so I was actually okay. a Java programmer at that time. No, nothing wrong with Java, but before this in college. I had been a C++ programmer. So during high school and college, I had been a C++ programmer, but I transitioned to Java because that's where the money was. That's where the jobs were. So I spent about seven days writing Java code, trying to figure out how to attack the software or the DVD, HD DVD drive or the transmission between the, the different units, just trying to okay. figure out how was I going to hack it. I downloaded the white paper. I read through the specs. I understood how they're doing the encryption and the handshakes and, and, and how they do the key derivations and you know the different HMACs and, and the different hashing algorithms. And I read the whole spec. And, and you know, at, at this point, I was not a cryptographer. You know, I, I was just a guy who liked mm -hmm. to program. And so I read through and I thought, okay, I got a pretty good understanding of this. And I said, well, where's the, where's the vulnerability going to be? And now keep in mind, I was not a hacker at this time. I was not a hacker. I'd never attended DEF CON. I didn't even really know DEF CON existed in 2007. I, I, was, I was as far removed from the scene as possible. And yeah. I, I just looked at it logically and I said, well, the vulnerability is either going to be in the player, the physical player, it's going to be in the software, or it's going to be in the connection points between the units. Mm -hmm. And I looked at each one and I said, given the likelihood or the probability of weakness, where should I first start my attack? And I, I, I went out to a bunch of uh, to wear sites and forums and I found mm -hmm. some copies of HD DVD and Blu-ray players, software players. So I downloaded them. Power DVD, oh. Win DVD. I found as many as I could. And I said, you know what? I am a programmer, so I know the inherent weakness and vulnerability in software. <laughs> I mean, I'm not a hardware engineer like my father. So for me to attack from a hardware perspective, the HDD, HD DVD drive would, would be a lot of work. Not that I couldn't do it, but let's attack the software because I yeah. know how vulnerable that is. And so I download, I think I downloaded three or four different HDD and Blu-ray players. Um, mm -hmm. And, uh, and I, I, I looked at each one. And I attacked the software. And I knew that the software was going to be vulnerable either from the binary or the ELF format, so the executable data, what we call the ELF, the ELF format, or upon the running instance. So I knew that software players, when run, are likely going to have to store either keys in memory or the derivation cycle of keys in memory or the seeds of the derivation in memory. And based on the, the AACS spec, I knew what to look for. I knew there had to be a, a seeding of the AACS routine that would cause the derivation. AACS is like a branching algorithm. So what it does is you derive a key and then you end up with the left, uh, a left center and a right de derivation. And then based on what you need, you either follow the, the, the hierarchy to the left or the right usually. So you've got these branches and then from the branches, you then further derive and onward and onward, you know, um, in levels deep. Yep. And so, so I said, well, let me, let, me just, let me just start by writing a bunch of code that looks at the running instance of the program and scans memory. And so I did that, and I didn't really find much from it. 
Because the problem is the, the code is executed so fast that looking at memory, unless you can look at memory on a tick by tick basis or do some sort of code injection into the DLLs and kind of steal codes from that perspective, you really can't do much. So the next step I said, well, let me try to slow down execution of the program. Let me try to get it at a tick by tick. So a tick is a given is a cycle on a CPU. So mm -hmm. if I could stop execution of the program and I could scan the entire memory region and look for deltas and diffs across tick by tick execution cycles, then what I could do is I can find out what the deltas are. And then based on the deltas, I can look for patterns and I could try to identify potential derivation chains or hooks into deriving keys from that, from the deltas. So I, so I ran, I wrote code in Java that looked at a running instance of a program over about a minute and every single tick, I, I grabbed memory. I grabbed memory, oh. I diffed it. And not only that, I archived in a, in a map what was going on. In fact, I had thousands and thousands and thousands of files filling up hard drives with diffs and hex dumps and just, you know, binary wow. dumps. And yeah, and, and so, and, but that, but here's the problem. The, my, my code kept crashing. My code kept crashing because Java would only allow me to allocate at that time, it was somewhere around 2.2 gigs. So the VM, the JVM only allowed you to execute up to like 2.1 gigs. It wasn't even four gigs. So it wasn't because it was, I had a 32-bit system there. So the threshold for memory access was uh, two to the 32 or, or four gigs of memory. And so I couldn't even, I couldn't even, and I had like an eight gig, eight gig memory stick in my machine. So I had plenty of memory, but I couldn't even use four gigs of memory space with Java because it would die. So I had to move back to, yep, my old friend C++. So seven days into this hacking attempt, I literally stopped being a Java programmer because J the JVM wasn't allowing me to use the full four gigs of memory of 32-bit address space. And I converted back into my roots, which was a C++ programmer. And I've, oh, never, yeah. looked, and I've never looked back since. I've never looked back from that day. Three days later, I rewrote all my utilities in C++ and I completely pwned the software. I, I, had extracted the, <laughs> I had extracted the keys because I had enough memory space to load in all of my memory maps to do my deltas while taking snapshots of the memory. And I remember it was Saturday morning. I had gotten up and it was early. It was like seven, eight in the morning. I'd got, I, you know, I'd gotten up and I, uh, the night I'd put some final touches on my utility and I ran it for the first time and it immediately within a second or two, boom, stopped with my output, the Whoa. device key. And I was like, okay, my minute, my, my thought, forgive my French is, okay, what did I fuck up? Yeah. <laughs> what, what did I fuck up? Cause the pro a programmer upon achieving success after days and days or weeks of working hard on something, your first assumption is not that you're successful. <laughs> the programmer's first assumption is what is wrong? What did I do wrong? Because we don't expect instant success. It very rarely happens. Yep. You know, it, usually it's an iterative process. But I, I so, so, so what do you do in that event? Well, you assume something's wrong and you run the program again. 
as if running the same code again is going to produce different results, which as we know is a sign of insanity. So I ran the program again because there's nothing else you could do. And the same results were processed and the same output happened. Well, it was at that time that I thought, well, holy crap, you know, maybe I've actually done it. So the irony to this whole story, and by the way, this is a much more in-depth analysis of my hack than you'll find on Darknet Diaries. So make sure you guys listen to, uh, to Philip's podcast here. It, it's the irony to all this is I had been pissed off two weeks prior for just trying to use what I bought legally. And mm -hmm. I, I went on this vendetta to screw them over but I never actually thought I would be successful. And I think to me, that is the most ironic of ironies is I was so surprised 10, 11 days after when I actually extracted the device keys that it made me think in hindsight, I never actually thought I'd be successful. And that I think was the biggest learning opportunity to all this is I should have believed in myself more because nobody in their right minds gets upset and spends almost two weeks every free mona every day reading a white paper, learning about cryptography, learning about how to hack different vulnerabilities, and then yeah. spends every waking moment for two weeks obsessed with this. Nobody does that unless you have the ability. And so, so I, I, I wish I would have believed more in myself at the beginning of those two weeks because I, I think I could have probably done the hack in half the time. <laughs> so, and, and gave myself an extra week to uh, either play that Xbox, watch those movies or, you know, do something <laughs> else. Um, but it's, it, it is kind of like, uh, I just recently watched the movie Hackers again. You know, oh, yeah. 95 movie. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's one of my favorite movies. And, you know, the whole hack the Gibson thing. And one of my favorite scenes, which there's a couple favorite scenes, but one of my favorite scenes is when the hackers are standing around saying, you know, if I help, you know, we can hack it in one minute less, you know. So if I help, we can hack it in five minutes. Oh, if yeah, I help, yeah. we can hack it yeah. in four minutes. <laughs> well, if I hack it, we can get it in three. And, and, I think that applies to belief in yourself. There is a quote that I actually have on my Twitter site that I think is, is really, really good. I have it pinned, but it's, it's basically, it's basically the, the Dunning-Kruger effect. So D-U-N-N-I-N-G-K-R-U-G-E-R effect. You can find it on Wikipedia. Mm -hmm. But it's basically, a, the, the quote is, the miscalibration of the incompetent stems from an error about the self, whereas the miscalibration of the highly competent stems, stems from an error about others. So what this means is people who are, are incompetent um, underemphasize the complexity uh, of things in the world, whereas people who are highly competent, you know, overemphasize the ability of others. And it's, it's a really interesting it's a really interesting thing that smart people tend to overemphasize the intelligence or the capability of others, whereas people who are less competent underemphasize the difficulty that solving really complex problems is. And, and I think that also links to belief in yourself, you know, because you should believe in yourself, but only if you have the experience and knowledge and that you're competent. So, when you when you face a problem 
and you are prepared, you should believe in yourself because anything less is going to potentially self-sabotage. And, and that, that was for me the learning experience in this hack is I did not know, I was the only one in the room that did not, and I was the only one in the room, but I was mm -hmm. the only one in the room who did not understand my abilities and who did not understand I, was, I had been a hacker for years. I grew up tinkering with, with uh, assembly and Commodore 64s and, 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 uh, and wares and, and, and removing copy protection. And I never Gosh. once thought that I was a hacker. You know, I never once thought as, as in high school or junior high, heck, I mean, when I was 12, 13, instead of playing basketball at lunch, I was, I was reading how to program assembly. You know, this is why didn't I know I was a hacker? Why didn't I know this? Um, I didn't get it until I was in my mid 20s. And, and now it's silly to look back and think, well, if that's not the definition of a hacker, I don't know what is, um, you know, but it was. Hacking Blu-ray was fun, and, and there's, a whole, there's a whole kind of dark side to it that people can check out on darknet, darknetdiaries.com. You know, some things that went on during, during those two weeks that, that kind of freaked me out, and that's when I got my first taste of the darkness, of the, the, the underbelly the, uh, of hacking, and just that very, very heavy temptation uh, that pulls you from one extreme to the other and that obsession that you can get with going down a path like that you know to change your hat from white to gray to black and it's you know it's a scary thing it's probably not unlike what a lot of people face with addiction um you it's know the, I mean, exactly the same as addiction i would say being a, or a, you're always chasing the kicks of the next thing and you know, when you've like finished your, your the, the big hack and then you, yeah. you know, the dopamine runs out of your body, then you're like, oh, what's the next big thing? And it, it's like yeah. chasing rainbows, you know? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's, uh, it, it's, it's not something I've, I've ever mastered, you know? I mean, I've, I, I had a, you're probably going to ask, I, I spent a couple of years with John McAfee and a couple of visits to Kim.com and, you know, the darkness and the temptation's real. And it's, it's, mm. uh, it's, it's scary. It's scary. What's out there. Um, How do you balance it? Or well, I, I, I think it for me, and this may not apply to everybody else in the world. This, this might be only applicable to me, but I had some opportunities to do some very bad things and, uh, in the hacking world and we're not talking, you know, assassinating people or anything Jason Bourne or anything. Okay. We're not talking Hollywood. This is, you know, it's not like anything. But, but I, I had some opportunities to make a lot of money, a lot of money, and do it in a way that was not uh, legit or legal. And, and at my core belief, somehow the core of who I am won out. Um, I mean, there were, there were times when it was very tempting to choose make make millions and millions and millions of dollars and be able to take care of your family and never work again but you'd be doing something illegal or you'd be potentially hurting people and uh and i always said no um and i i it's just you know i i w i don't know if it was because I, I was raised in a church you know i went to church till i was about you know college age i don't know if it was that 
I don't know if it was some sort of church-related religion, um, ethical upbringing. I don't know if it was just because uh, instilled in me by my parents was the sense of right and wrong. Um, I don't know if I personally just, there was a line that I would never be comfortable crossing because I couldn't respect myself. I don't know what it was, um, but I've never crossed that line that would cause me to uh, do something illegal and hurt others. Uh, I mean, one could argue releasing the Blu-ray device keys was illegal. But, you know, that, and, and, you know, maybe it did hurt people. You know, maybe it, hurted the, it may hurt the company and cost them hundreds of thousands of dollars and a lot of money, which, you know, maybe it cost people jobs. I don't know. I mean, it, it's tough to tell what the end result of what uh, and, the, and the, the downstream effects of our actions are. But, you know, perhaps being unseen allows us to be more comfortable with our actions and, and, and things where the detriment to others is more visible um, causes us to uh, hesitate. I, I don't know. I don't know that equation. But, but I said no. I said no to the illegitimate offerings of John McAfee. I said no to other illegitimate offerings because I didn't feel like it was right. And I think a lot of it went back to maybe it's morality, if such a thing exists. Maybe it's being a good person. I don't know. Maybe I'm not. Maybe I am. Who knows? Maybe a lot of it just goes back to just, uh, just me believing that if I took the easy road, I wouldn't be as good. And so maybe a lot of it comes down to pride and ego where I made the right decision because I knew that if I took the easy route, I would be... I would basically be proving to myself that I wasn't legitimate. And, and I think as hackers and programmers, we constantly are striving for self-legitimacy. You know, we're constantly fighting against this imposter complex, which goes mm -hmm. back, uh, you know, which basically goes back to my quote earlier of, uh, uh, of, of the, um, uh, of the, of the Dunning, uh, the Dunning Kruger effect. And that is people who are extremely competent, feel like they're imposters because they underemphasize the ability and the intelligence which is required to arrive at their level. So they think they've somehow sidestepped or are or, or, or somehow impostering about in their lives. And I, I, think, I think a lot of it may have been pride and ego, knowing that if I, if I didn't make it by my talents, by my raw talents and abilities, then I'd I'd be proving myself the imposter. I always feared I was. And, but you know what? If, if it's ego and pride driving us to make correct decisions in life, then we could, we could exist in a far worse world than that. Is that still right? I don't know. I don't have a psych degree. But I do know that for me personally, it, it was always a constant struggle between, you know, the easy route proves I am an imposter and the hard route proves that I can punch through and I could find the solution just like you hacked blu-ray you know just like I built demon saw you know just like I, I made games like Grand Theft Auto 5 and Red Dead Redemption 2 um, but I don't know maybe it was challenge maybe I get bored easily too it, it, it's a tough thing for for us for people like us to know what really is motivating us to make good and bad decisions but at the end of the day i think what really matters is the fruits of our labor are we producing things that help society along 
at the end of our lives, will we leave this world making the world a better place than we entered it? Once again, cliche, but as hackers, every day I want to be producing things that help people and, and preferably help people like us, you know, mm -hmm. intelligent engineers, hacker-minded programmers who believe in technology and, and who also believe in intellect, but also believe in, in, uh, in good things through sacrifice. Yeah, this totally. is, this is, you this you is touch like... upon a very interesting subject there, the entire mental picture of it, and being able to prove yourself towards uh, your own ego, which is, uh, I think, is very interesting. I've yeah. been doing uh, lately. I I've been doing a lot of like uh, reading into like Buddhism and uh, psychology and stuff like that. Yeah. So uh, getting into meditation and other other things. And uh, it's very interesting if you have like a society and you remove everyone's ego mm -hmm. and uh, you remove the temptations and uh, like you, you, what if you were to remove, you know, all the desires? What if we had no desires? We would just be sitting there right. being happy, feeling loved. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> yeah, this, and we... We yeah. get nothing done. We get absolutely nothing done and society okay. would crumble. That's an interesting point. And, and, and just so your listeners know, I, I had no notes or talking points for, for this for this call. Like I it's interesting how it's going with, with the discussion on ego and pride and motivation because it's it's something that I've never talked about, you know, and it's it's something that I've never really heard other people in our field talk about. Like what motivates us, you know, what what drives us to do to write this code? Um, I, I think if we knew that, we could duplicate it. I think if we knew exactly what drove us, we could squeeze it from our blood and put it in a bottle and make a lot more of it and then sell it and maybe make a lot of money doing it. But, you know, I think for everyone, it's slightly different. And, and, and I think that's the dilemma you know, there is no lightning in a bottle. There is no 100% deterministic and reproducible uh, event. Mm -hmm. It's It comes down to personality and ego and emotion. And really what defines us is, as humans. Totally. Yeah. And that's on a human level. It's not just, <laughs> you know, or yeah, it's we as humans. Right. Uh, it is fascinating. Yeah. So, uh, so, I mean, this is open forum. So uh, I don't want to, I don't want to <laughs> sidetrack us with a lot of, of, of Buddhist kind of thoughts and, and spiritual journeys. I mean, it, it's fun, but I'm sure you have other questions and stuff you want to get to. Yes. Uh, you mentioned you, uh, you quit Rockstar. Why did you quit Rockstar? Uh, you, you know, if I, I love Rockstar and I, you know, Rockstar, Rockstar is a great company and it's been almost, in fact, it's been exactly five years now since I resigned from Rockstar. I was at Rockstar for five years. I, mm -hmm. I made Max Payne 3, Grand Theft Auto 5, and, and I was working on Red Dead Redemption 2 when I left. And uh, I absolutely loved it. I loved Rockstar. I loved everything about the culture. I love being part of the gaming elite. You know, we... Now, people don't understand is when it comes to engineering 
and, and technical jobs, there's really two at the top of the food chain. There's mm -hmm. two jobs at the top of the pyramid. So if, if you want to enter, if you want to get an engineering degree or you want to be a, a, a technical individual, in my opinion, there's two things you can be in life that really are at the top of your game. One of them is a hacker. You know, you can be a hacker, you can be a tinkerer, you can exploit stuff, you can pop boxes, you can, for good or bad, you can hack. And the mm -hmm. next one is a game programmer. You can be a, a, an engineer at a game development studio, a triple A studio, because both, and people ask me, why would you say that? Why, why, why would you say that? Well, mm -hmm. there's a lot of other jobs where you are smart and skilled. Yes, there are. It doesn't mean hackers and game programmers have the most knowledge in their brains. In order to be at the top of the hacker and game programmer food chain, you have to be good at many different disciplines. To be a hacker, you have to understand pen testing. You've got to understand code. You've got to understand different operating systems. You've got to understand scripting engines. You've got to understand network protocols. You've got to understand cryptography. The list yeah. goes on and on and on. You've got to have zero days. You've got to know where to look on, on forums and, and the dark web. And, and yeah. to be a game programmer, it's the same. I mean, what people don't understand is a video game that runs on the Xbox or the PS4 or the Switch is a self-contained operating system. So the video game itself, when you write a video game, yes, there's an API like the Win32 API or the Linux API that you can use that does lower level kernel functions. But mm -hmm. video games manage everything themselves. They manage threads. They manage the affinity of those threads. And by the way, the, a thread affinity is basically what core your work will run on. You manage threads and the assignment of thread affinity. You, ran, you manage all of your multi-threaded access, preventing race conditions and deadlocks, you manage all of your memory. A video game has custom memory allocators. You don't just call new, you actually write your own memory allocators that override new and delete. And you reserve the entire eight gigs up front or eight gigs minus the size of the operating system and the size of your executable. And you manage the assignment and how you partition memory up all within the game. The OS doesn't Whoa. manage any of that. Yeah. So what you've, when you build a video game, and not only that, but you manage the scene graph. You manage safe execution uh, between the render thread and the main thread. You, you manage everything in a video game to the point where you've almost created a self-contained operating system that uses a first-party API from time to time. Um, you manage input output of files. You manage all of your network traffic. You do all the cryptography yourself. Oh, well. And so that's, you have to have multiple disciplines just like you do when you hack. And that's why both of those have excited me as career paths because it's not enough to be good at one or two things. You have to be brilliant at five or six of them. Otherwise you'll never be a great hacker and you'll never be a great programmer game programmer. So that's why I put those two at the top of the echelon, because they require mastering of multiple disciplines, if not all disciplines. How big was the code base when you were working with Rockstar? So this is going to blow people away. I once did a K-lock scan because I was curious. If you count the build pipeline, the tools, everything to make the game, 5.5 mm -hmm. 5 million lines of code. 
Oh, gosh. Five, and think of that just for a second. GTA 5 had over 5 million lines of code. Now, compare that to Demon Saw that I wrote all by myself. Demon Saw has about 50,000 lines of code. Now, 50,000 lines of code that I wrote all by myself compared to over 5 million lines of code that were written by, let's say at any given time, about 100, 110 programmers. Because Rockstar had about 1,000 employees. It still has about 1,000 mm-hmm. employees. And there were about 120 programmers at w- when I left. Okay. And that's, I mean, that's a lot of programmers, but that was spread around the world. That was back-end programmers, military, UI. I mean, that, if you think about a game like GTA V to only have about a and, – and by the way, Rockstar was working on multiple games at one time. They were never just working on one game. They were always working on at least two games, GTA V, GTA V DLC, Red Dead Redemption 2. All those went on at the same time. You know, as well as patches for other games like L.A. Noir and Max Payne and just other things. Mm-hmm. So 100, 110, 120 programmers to manage over 5 million lines of code. This is why nobody in the company has any idea of what's going on in the game. No one person in Rockstar has a total understanding of the machine. And now this is an in, this is an interesting kind of uh, deviation of our of our chat. When you have such a complex machine, and nobody has a clear picture of of the goings on or the running of the machine, then the question I would ask is who's in control? Is the machine, aka the code base, in control, or are the programmers in control? Hmm. I I would argue that once you reach critical mass of code that the code itself, it doesn't become sentient. We're not quite there yet, but the code itself takes on a form of its own and a power of its own, and in a certain way controls its future evolution, primarily because nobody understands what's going on. So this is why when you're a programmer, you have to be really extra careful the code you write and always think of maintenance, and as well as cleanliness of your code. Um, I'm not a big fan of commenting code. I think commenting code just makes it dirty, but I am a big fan of clean, modular, well-abstracted, well-thought-out, and easily maintainable code. Because once you reach the 50,000 lines like in Demon's Saw, mm-hmm. it's, it's almost impossible to know what's going on. Even for me, who wrote every line, just imagine 5 million lines of code. That's uh, sounds insane. But was there is there some kind of internal documentation of or if if you have one function and you want to yeah. do something with another piece of code that is no. someone else is managing it? How do you no. kind of know no. who to poke? You don't no there or... there's there no there's zero documentation of the code within Rockstar, which oh, which wow. it's so here's the thing it that sounds insane, but no, yeah. it could only be that way to achieve greatness. And, and here's okay. why Rockstar does, and, and I know that sounds a bit unintuitive, but let me explain. When you're producing cutting edge AAA games like Red Dead Redemption 2, which by the way, you know, I don't own a copy, but is a masterpiece of a game. You know, I worked on that game. It's got rave reviews 
or game like Cyberpunk 2077 that's coming up. You know, once yeah. it, that will be an amazing game. I'm sure it will. Um, but when you're producing that quality of product, even taking one or two or 3% of your programming staff and applying them to anything but the product is a waste of time because there's, you'll never ever have free time because every second you spend, every minute of the 80 hours a week you're putting into the final crunch of the project has to go to the greatness of the product. And no matter how much time you give the dev team, they will always use all that time and more to sneak in more and more features that are gonna make this the greatest game ever. And that Amazing. is the vicious, that's the vicious cycle of what it means to be great is you never have downtime. And so Rockstar has no programming documentation. Uh, I mean, there's some wikis here and there, but mm -hmm. they're, they're quickly out of date, you know, and, and it's mostly documenting systems or high level system interaction. But if we had Javadoc for all of our C++ code or the C version of Javadoc, I don't even know what it is, but um, that tells you how little I actually focus on, on commenting and documentation. <laughs> um, if, if we had that, it would be out of date within a month because of just the constant churn of new systems and replacing and upgrading. And okay, now we got the Xbox X and we got the PS5 and now we have to strip out and replace all the APIs but we're making a PS4 and a PS5 game. So we've got to keep both APIs. So now we've got to create a new abstraction layer between the Sony systems. Oh, what's this? We're adding a PSP title. Well, not anymore, but okay. Well, now we've got to have a third, you know, okay. Oh, somebody wants a switch port of LA Noir. Okay, well now we've got to add it. You get the idea. It, yeah, it, yeah. it gets to the point where it's like, there's no time for docs. And even if we had them, they'd be useless. So by making docs, you're wasting time creating stuff that's outdated the moment you publish it. So what Rockstar does, which I think is the same way I run my companies, is your mm -hmm. code is your docs. Your code is your documentation. So instead of having docs that allow junior programmers to understand overly complex things or things that are above their pay grade, you level them up. You make them better programmers. And over time, what was very difficult to understand when they were juniors now becomes intuitive and obvious when they're mm -hmm. mid-level and senior programmers. So level up your people and increase the intellect and their knowledge to the point where they get what's going on because you train them the right way. And that's how Rockstar pursues its programming staff and its engineering department. And, and that's, that's, now that's hard to do. It's hard to do because you have to avoid attrition. You don't want to lose good people because you're constantly having to retrain. So you have to incentivize your people to stay. And there, there are various ways that you can incentivize them. You can incentivize them based on the dopamine rush of mm -hmm. being in the greatest game company that ever existed. Rockstar Games is definitively, without a doubt, the greatest game company that has ever existed and exists today. Absolutely, without question in my mind. People can feel free to debate that and disagree with me. That's great. But in my mind, they are the greatest game studio ever the world has okay. ever known and probably the world will ever know. But they do so because they bust their ass every day because they you get the dopamine rush. 
because it's uh it's kind of like in that Simpsons episode. We work hard and we play hard. There was this scene in Simpsons where all these guys, these very very manly men, are working in a like a, a machine factory. You know, they're mm-hmm. lifting pipes. They're they're doing things. You know, big manly things with machines. And then there was this cutoff. You know, we work hard and we play hard. And then suddenly the entire machine shop converts into a a a, a gay disco. And this you know, <laughs> lights and and all the men are suddenly dancing. And I mean, that, but. It, it, I, I'll never forget. Was, I forget what episode of Simpsons, but we work hard and we play hard. That that's the rock star mantra, and awesome. you know, and that's that's the way it has to be. So, at some point in time, though, five million lines of code will no longer be maintainable, and and this is why every single release, Rockstar focuses on one or two systems to rewrite. You know, to rewrite, to mm-hmm. improve, to clean up. Um, and so every game, they pick two, three, you know, maybe four different systems out of 20, 24, 30 systems, and they, they redo it. You know, maybe there's only one or two per game. Um, I remember of my, the last few months at Rockstar, they were rewriting the AI system. So Red Dead Redemption 2 had a much more extensive AI system than GTA 5 did. So you, you, you get many more options with conversation trees. You get many more options with changing the game and the plot based on your choices, which are persisted. Um, so, you know, if you, if you say something mean to this, uh, this, this old lady down the street, well, that's going to change the rest of the game. And not only that, but she'll remember it. So you can't show up to her, you know, uh, you know, in, in, in a couple of days and expect her to, to give you whatever she was promising. She's basically giving you a big F you. Um, these are things that you can rewrite and you can improve upon. So that's, that's what you find these companies doing is they invest in rewriting subsystems every single launch. And so basically after five, 10 years, you've rewritten, rewritten your entire games, uh, you know, game engine. And, and that's, and that's how you, and that's how you continue to achieve greatness. Is there a lot of difference between like the APIs, uh, between different systems? Like when yeah. you have done an, uh, when you have done finished a game and you want to port it to a new system, is it a lot of rewriting? Absolutely. Mm. Uh, well, well, it's, it's, I would think of it more as a, you create abstraction layers to interface with the APIs. So you create an interface by which all the C++ code can call in and it doesn't need to know whether it's a PS4 or PS5 or an Xbox One or a Switch or whatever. But the APIs themselves are as as different as the night is from the day. I I mean, just to give you one, one example, the PS3, and you can read about this, the PS3 is probably one of the worst gaming systems ever known to man because it embraced a technology called SPU technology. So SPUs were small little, they were small little mini cores is the way to look at it that operate Mm -hmm. independently of the main core. And the idea is you could kick off little mini units of work to the SPUs and they have access to certain amounts of memory, very, very limited. We're talking Ks of memory is all, you know, uh, kilobytes of memory. But you could give them a little bit of work and then they would report back completely asynchronously and then your main, so they're basically mini cores. They're mini, it, it was a, yeah, it was a mini core design in an era where we didn't have it wasn't common to have four, six, eight, 12 cores like we do today. 
you know, and now today you go buy a, a new Intel CPU and it's, you know, oh, this one has eight cores. Okay, great. This one has six cores, 12 cores, no big deal. So yeah. now we have a multi-core architecture where every core is independent. But back then in, you know, 2000, you know, whenever the PS3 came out, 2007, eight, whenever it came out, you didn't have this. So the way that Sony tried to address this was let's have one big CPU, you know, and then let's have all these mini SPUs. The problem with SPU development is, is it wasn't intuitive. So what happened with PS3 is that most devs wrote a game for Xbox 360 and then mm -hmm. they ported it to PS3. And what happened is the PS3 ports were less quality. So the first party oh. PS3 games, like what you get with Naughty Dog, or what you get with Sony were super high quality because they fully used the SPUs or at least they tried to use them. Mm -hmm. So games like Ratchet and Clank, amazing on PS3 or you know the Sony first party titles or second party titles, amazing. But if you have a game company like Rockstar or Activision that has to make an Xbox 360 and a PS3, um, they would build the game on the Xbox 360 for two reasons. Number one, is the Xbox 360 had a multi-core architecture that is easier to code. So you can tie in your thread affinities to your actual worker threads in the same way we do today with modern mm. PCs. So developing on a 360 was just like developing on a PC. So that's why you got a lot of companies that could easily make a PC port when they make a 360 game because they all use DirectX as well. But another benefit besides the traditional multi-core architecture that the Xbox 360 had, was it also had unified memory. And this was something that the PS3 Sony totally got wrong. So what, what PS3 did is it said, we have 512 megs of memory. Now we're gonna split it in half. Okay, they're totally segregated memory models. On the PS3, 256 of megs of your 512 megs could only be used by the GPU. So effectively, efficiently. So the mm -hmm. GPU, so basically use it as a texture store is what you do. You store your textures there. And the GPU can access this memory really, really quick. But if the CPU tries to access this, this 256 megs, it's super, super, super slow. The other 256 megs of the PS3 memory, the first thing that comes out of that is the operating system. The second thing that comes out of that is the executable. So by the time your game on PS3 was actually running, of the 256 megs of CPU-friendly and CPU-fast memory, you only really got around 180 to 185 megs of fully reusable CPU memory. So 185 megs is really all you got on a PS3 for multi-purpose CPU-accessible memory. The other 256 megs was textures. And what game programmers found out is that on a PS3, 256 megs was a lot of space for textures. <laughs> so a lot of space for textures on a game. So Sony got it wrong because it had segregated memory model. Xbox 360 got it right, meaning all 512s of your memory on Xbox could be accessed efficiently and effectively by both the CPU and the GPU. So you as a game program can divide up your 360 memory and allocate the memory models uh, based on how much you need for the GPU or the CPU, which allowed Xbox 360 games to totally outperform PS3 games when a game company produced the same game on both platforms. That's why 360 won that console war 
And that's why PS4 moved away from the CPU and the segregated memory model and, and exactly adapted the model that, that Microsoft and PCs were using. So Sony's experiment failed. But keep in mind, when PS3 games were written by first party or second party just for the PS3, they could be amazingly brilliant and actually outperform 360 games if they, if they used the strengths of the PS3 console. But ask any developer that worked on the PS3 and wrote SPU code like myself, and they'll tell you one thing. It was a nightmare, and I wanted to kill myself every single moment of the day that I wrote this SPU code. Um, so that's an interesting history of, of the difference between the two platforms. But these are all engineering problems that we as programmers have to solve, for better or worse. Which brings me back to my original point. If you don't love programming, you should not be a programmer. <laughs> if, this, if this kind of stuff I'm talking about doesn't get you excited or want to read a Wikipedia article about SPUs, you know, maybe being a hacker or maybe being a game programmer is just not for you. It, it's a life choice. It really is. It's a life choice and it's all consuming. Totally. Totally. What, what motivates you? currently right now when you're developing uh, what are you working on right now oh that's great those are great questions so so it's been um it's been about five years since i since i made the first demon saw and as you know i released four for four versions of it um mm -hmm. demon saw 4 was released about three years ago now at uh at what was it no, oh, gosh, I don't even remember defcon 26 i think so maybe two years ago De yeah but i guess uh, time flies, man. But um, it's been, yeah, it's been about two years, I think, since I, no, it was, I'm sorry, it was three years. 2017 was the last Demon Saw. So in that time, um, I've been trying to figure out a way to take the idea of Demon Saw. And by the way, for your listeners who aren't really familiar, my idea with Demon Saw was we had a, we had torrents. So when I first made Demon Saw five years ago, you know, torrents were very active. It's very easy. You can download whatever you want now. Mm -hmm. If you want to go get uh, tomorrow, if you want to go get the the first episode of season two of Mandalorian, you can do so without any repercussions. You can mm -hmm. easily do so. You can you can go pay a, a five dollars a month. So for a VPN and download whatever you want, and nobody's ever gonna. It's super easy. Super yeah. easy to to steal stuff these days. Nobody can stop you. Um, so my, my goal with Demisaw was, okay, that's all good and well. The problem is, isn't anybody worried about VPN providers? You know, so my question was, people use a VPN to mask their IP address. I, I mean, that's, VPNs are used to give a layer of indirection between your, your home IP address that the ISP assigns you and the content that you're acquiring or you're uploading. Uh, so Isn't the, the it weird that everyone is just trusting a, a mm -hmm. random company on the internet and sending their data through a random black hole? Uh, well, I, yeah, it's very weird. And, and yeah. now, now, uh, now, on one hand, there's the the paranoid side that you know you've got people with tin hats saying, "Oh, the NSA has backdoored all these ISPs." No, it's highly unlikely because of the way they're all distributed across the globe. But yeah. nonetheless, you know people are blindly trusting VPN providers to, you know, basically route their traffic. And yes, a lot of them say we do not log, but you know what? It's really easy to put a statement on my website saying I do not log. 
How do people actually know you don't lock? Well, good question. Well, we got, um, you know, we, we've got the, uh, what's a GDPR. We've got, you know, we, we've got other privacy laws enacted in Europe and okay, great. But you know what? There's a lot of laws enacted in Europe that people disobey. <laughs> you know, I know a lot of people that regularly smoke marijuana in Europe all the time and it's yep. super easy to get and it's nobody's getting in trouble. Yep. Um, and then in the U S you have the opposite thing happening. Who would have thought the U S is going, you know, is going to be, the, the first, you know, the, the first um, first world country that outright completely legalizes marijuana as That's a recreational crazy. drug. It's That's nuts, crazy. right? It's like the United States founded on conservative Christian values is going to be the first big country in the world that outright legalizes recreational marijuana. Now, I don't do marijuana. I have lots of friends that do. It totally should be legal. Because the effects of marijuana, there's medicinal effects, there's health effects, there's anxiety effects. It's less destructive than tobacco and, uh, and alcohol. I mean, we, you and I could sit here being logical individual, individuals and totally justify what, but it's not legal in Europe. Why? Yep. Blows my mind. So there's a lot of things that are illegal that people still do. Why do we think VPN providers are not sharing data? Heck, if I if I were a bad person and I ran a VPN company and I could make million dollars or more millions of dollars selling people's private information or usage patterns to marketing companies, I would sure as heck do it. Why would you not make millions of dollars? VPN companies are in the business of making a profit. And here's what people don't understand. They're not in the business of protecting you and me. They're in the business of making their company. Whether they're a European company, Asian company, Russian company, U.S. company, companies are in business to make money. And if that means they sell you out and they sell me out, they shrug it off and they move on. They'll make easily make a buck off of betraying us. That's pretty funny that you say that because last week or uh, this week, because this will be released in two weeks. So th this week's episode, which is the episode before this one, we had uh, I had uh, Johnny Xmas, which is like... Uh, a hacker guy and he told me about there's this vpn service called uh, hola vpn h-o-l-a and i read the terms of service to put in the show notes and uh, hola vpn has a free uh, they have a free service so you can use their vpn for, for free in addition they will uh, they will basically use your um, use your computer as a, a bot exit node so they have this other company where they rent out residential IPs to like scanners and stuff like that. Uh -huh. So all the people that are using the free node, uh, the free version, they're actually, you know, they're, they're like exit node for botnets and stuff like uh -huh. that. And there's also this other company called Monkey Socks that uses, uh, they have an Android SDK and they basically tell apps, we will pay you to use our SDK for making uh, socket connections. And in return, they, they like lease out, they have like a proxy as a service. So you, they, you can like proxy your web scans through their, uh, through the SDKs. So they're also providing, uh, yeah. so yeah, you can use the free stuff, but in return, you become this exit node for botnets and stuff like that. And, and, and you know, as incredible as this sounds to a lot of your listeners, I, I imagine 
probably the majority of your listeners are very intelligent, very well-versed and learned individuals, you know, because the content of these, of these podcasts, it's, it's, it's not for the faint of heart, you know, it's, it's not for the noobs. A lot of this content's very advanced. So I imagine a lot of your listeners are not going to be surprised by this, but to the average, you know, non-savvy individual, this sounds outrageous. This sounds like, uh, like some sort of conspiracy theory, but you're absolutely right. This is real. And mm-hmm. the important thing to realize is these companies need to make money and they're going to make money doing whatever they need to do. And if, if that means selling our data, using us as, as exit nodes on botnets, it's not going to matter. They're going to do it. Um, mm-hmm. so, we, so when I was creating Demonsaw five years ago, I realized, well, first of all, I got bored in Edinburgh. So I was in Scotland and I was finishing up GTA 5 and we were in the last month of development. So we were pretty much in lockdown. So there was n- I didn't have to work 80 hours a week. I was in Scotland. I had mm-hmm. lived there for nine months to finish up with the team there. And I really had nothing to do. You can only go out and get drunk so many nights. I, I mean, yeah. Edinburgh, you, Edinburgh is a great city. I love Edinburgh. It's one of my favorite cities. But every corner has two or three pubs on it. So and, and literally, literally, and I remember you get beer in certain places, not in pints, in quart glasses. <laughs> like I, I remember get, going to uh, this place called Pivo, and Pivo is in downtown Edinburgh. They serve you pints, you know, if 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 you're uh, not a very avid drinker, but if you're a serious manly Scottish uh, Scotsman, then uh, they'll give you a, a quart. And literally, this thing, I had a quart of Guinness. And I thought, this is going to kill me. Like, it, it's literally the, <laughs> the court of Guinness. I, you know, I'm not a very muscular guy. I, I'm a computer programmer. You know, I, I don't have too many muscles. But it was painful to drink this thing. Uh, and this is normal. Uh, uh, you know, you go after work, you go have a couple pints. A couple pints in Scotland means four or five. So I want, yeah. I want people to understand, a couple does not mean two in Scotland. Yeah. It means four or five <laughs> or any number above and you'll never quite be able to remember how many pints you had. You know, so that's how you know you achieve greatness when you went out with your mate, <laughs> you know, is you don't remember how many you had. Um, but that's how Demon Cell started. I, I had a little bit extra free time, and I thought, can I create a decentralized app that allows people to securely communicate and exchange files without it being peer-to-peer? So literally, that was the Demon Cell pitch decentralized without peer-to-peer. But I want it to be encrypted. I want it to be impossible for people to hack and take down. And I, I wanted it to be completely, uh, completely free of any ability to serve up DMCA notices or takedown notices. Can I create something like that? Mm-hmm. And, and, and would it work? And so I, that's, that's where Demonsaw started. And then I thought, well, what if I sent all of the traffic as HTTP or HTTPS? So what if okay. all of the demon saw traffic was TCP and looked like HTTP traffic? What would happen? What would the routers and the network devices do with it by, def- by default? Would they just let it through? What would China and their great firewall do with traffic that looked like HTTP? what was actually sending encrypted communications. Just, I was curious, what would they do? You know, this was the hacker in me. Well, Mm -hmm. what I found out is this traffic 
automatically routed through the internet. Nobody stopped it. No, none of these routers and network devices and firewalls stopped it. They let it through Whoa. blindly because it looked just like web traffic. And I thought, I did not think it would work. I thought surely DPI is going to look at it. They're going to look at the payloads. They're going to look at the, the header values. They're going to look at all these things. Nope. When I went out to Beijing uh, two years ago uh, to speak at DEF CON China, I started my laptop. I connected mm -hmm. to the hotel Wi-Fi, which obviously is a dangerous thing. So I had a burner yeah. laptop with me, but I connected to the hotel Wi-Fi. I started Telegram. I started Slack. Neither worked. Slack didn't work. Telegram didn't work. I thought, okay, um, mm -hmm. let me start Skype. Oh, Skype worked. You know why Skype worked? Microsoft has a deal with the People's Republic of China. And yep, okay. Skype To be whitelisted or... Well, I'm sure Microsoft has a deal that shares traffic that goes through China, which, you know, Microsoft is making money, right? It's their company, they're yeah. making money. We shouldn't be angry at companies whose sole primary purpose is to make money when they make money. We shouldn't, as, as privacy advocates, we shouldn't be upset by this. Telegram did not work. Slack did not work. I started Demonsaw. It worked all week long. I had a friend with me, a guy who helped me write the Demonsaw 4 UI. Okay. He, used, he, he set up an open VPN connection. It worked for a little under than two hours, and then China shut it down. Hmm. So, and, he, and, and they blocked the port. They blocked the IP automatically, completely blocked his VPN. Demonsaw? Worked all week long, zero problems. So I said I, I made Demonsaw to really test this concept of, of what I call traffic subterfuge. So it's not obfuscation, but it's traffic subterfuge. If, okay. if, if you and I want to communicate anywhere in the world, in democratic countries, in communist countries, in socialist countries, in countries in war, doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. The question is, can we freely communicate across devices that are performing deep packet inspection and potentially some sort of filtering? Can we communicate just by shifting the protocol by which we communicate? So can we use protocol subterfuge as an attack vector to get okay. our communication across the wire when it's fully encrypted? So let's encrypt our communication but let's just send it as a different protocol. Can we send it as a DNS? Can we send it as SMTP? As okay. an, um, can yeah. we send it as top three? Can we send it as, and you know what? It works, 100% works. And the scary thing about this, 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 uh, this need to surveil and this need to filter and this need to block traffic is it's so easy to sidestep these rules if we just shift to a different protocol, if we just slightly change how we send our encrypted traffic, we can get our traffic through because so much data is going through these network devices that it's impossible for countries like China to filter out everything, to identify all the positives. So in an effort to not piss off everybody, they have to allow certain amount of traffic through. Because if they blocked everybody that looked nefarious, half the people in China would never have internet connections. Because you can never be sure, right? I mean, you're doing instantaneous checks. 
you know, packet inspection, and you're having to make algorithmic decisions. There's a dial you can turn up, you can turn down. You turn it up, I block more traffic, but I potentially have false positives. I turn it down, I block less traffic, but I potentially let bad people or bad traffic through or people that I would rather block based on my motivation. So, so that, that has to be set at a point where you don't create chaos and uprising in the country. So you basically make the data so similar to normal data that no one can make a signature for it to detect it. Exactly. And I call this, I actually, what I'm working on right now is technology like Demonsaw, but on steroids, you know, 10, <laughs> 10, 100 times more powerful. I call cool. this hide, I call this technology hiding in plain sight. So the, the, the solution to the future of privacy, the, where we're going as a society is a, is, is a, is a deep state. It's a, it, it is a, not only a 1984 or an Orwellian type state where governments are going to mandate every single aspect of everybody's life. They're going to control us. They're going to monitor us. Um, when I went to London and I went to Edinburgh, there were cameras on every street corner seven years ago. That's crazy. You go to New York, you go to New York city, every street corner, you know, you go to Oslo, Every, there's cameras everywhere. We would be foolish to believe that this won't increase. We will soon be in a world where everybody is monitored and everybody is tracked and everybody is in a database and our actions. And, and I know this does sound a little crazy, but this is the reality. Everything we do will be scrutinized and people will come to conclusions based on patterns in our life that may or may not be evidence of wrongdoing or um, potential malicious activity or an intent to harm or go against the flow. So what we need now in today's society is not encryption, not anonymity, you know, because those are great. You know, Demon Saw gives you anonymity. Demon Saw gives you encryption. But what we need now is technology that enables people to hide in plain sight. If you don't know that I'm sending an a special message to you. If the government doesn't know that I'm ever communicating with you, then how's it going to know to try to break my encryption? How's it going to know anything if it doesn't know that a transmission has been sent? And the best way to send that transmission is to look like every other of the billions or trillions of transmissions going on every day. Because yeah. they can only the do crowd. so much. Exactly. Get lost in the crowd. Uh, and that's it's like that scene in Matrix when, you know, you talked about Matrix uh, in the intro. Yeah. So Neo gets in the, uh, you know, the Matrix for the first time in the simulation and he gets distracted by the lady in the red dress. Yeah. And he doesn't know that a guy's pointing gun at his head. Why, why does he not know that the guy's pointing gun at his head? Well, you could say he's a man. He got distracted by a beautiful woman. Sure. Yeah. But the real reason why he did not know is because the guy with the gun looked like everybody else. So hiding in plain sight can be used to escape detection, but it can also be used to hunt, to track down, to find people. So what we want, what we want to use it in my company now is to avoid detection. If I can send data, any amounts of data 
encrypted between any amount of parties and not have anybody know that I'm sending the data, I've won. I've outright won. I don't have to worry about anonymity. I don't have to worry about confidentiality, encryption. I don't have to worry about any of these things. These extra things become parts of the hiding in plain sight. You can hide in plain sight and send data completely unencrypted and it mm -hmm. may be perfectly fine to achieve your goal. Hiding in plain sight may actually require you to send unencrypted data. But you can send that meaningless unencrypted data in a way that means something to the receiving party. Like the same way that number stations mean something to people listening or people create their own languages or their own ciphers. Yeah. So just be so encryption, anonymity are not the solution. And, and so the company I'm working on right now, the company that I founded is basically designed around how do we achieve our goal of hiding in plain sight? And how can we build products with that technology to set people free? Uh, and, and that's the focus of my newest company, Code Siren. Code Siren, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's codesiren.com, C O D E. S-I-R-E-N, like Demon Saw, it's a play on words. So code is obviously what we write. And siren in the English language has two meanings. Number one, it's a device used to make a lot of noise. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, you know, but also it is a, uh, it is a, a mythological creature that was, uh, was known to, uh, to lure sailors to their deaths. So a siren, usually they're- oh, yeah. Uh, mermaids yeah. or some side of creatures. Yeah. So they, they, they had this beautiful song that lured sailors into the waters where they basically killed them. And so it's, it's got this play on words where, you know, the siren can be soft, but the siren can also be loud. And sometimes the most dangerous sirens are the ones that are quiet, whisper quiet, uh, not necessarily the ones that are uh, hurting our ears. So it's this, it's this duality, just like Demon Saw had a very similar name. That's, uh, that's cool. And how, how far how far have you gotten into to this? When can we expect uh, like a MVP? Yeah, so so we've been uh, we've been working we've been working hard on this. We've been working about a little bit more than 12 months uh, on mm -hmm. the technology, actively building out. We have an internal release planned at the end of the year, and the. Uh, I'm not sure when the public release or the MVP will be available. It won't be before the end of this year, but the entire company will be using the product full-time uh, starting Jan 1. So we're, we're in the final stages of building out. Uh, but just like Demon Saw, it's full of encryption. It's full of anonymity. Unlike Demon Saw, our product, which by the way, the code name for the product is just contact. It's a very, it's our internal code name. That's not the actual name of the real product. Okay. But un unlike Demon Saw, the it operates in both peer-to-peer -peer and routed ways. So you can route your transmissions or you can directly achieve your transmissions. And what's cool about that is you can go peer-to-peer -peer if you want to avoid any sort of routing technology. So if you're in the middle of a field and you and your friend want to communicate directly and you can totally do that, with encryption keys that you derive on the fly. Hmm. It has identity, multiple support for identity, which is cryptographically based, as well as 100% anonymity. So you can be anonymous on the network. You can also have multiple identities that you switch between. 
it's a product that's designed around this idea of uh, communication. So unlike Demonsaw, which was a test case for secure chat, routing, anonymity, using HTTP, Contact allows you to, well, first of all, it's got full support of elliptic curve encryption. So, mm -hmm. it, so it's got asymmetric and symmetric encryption. It uses the same social encryption ideas that I created in Demonsaw. So you can derive your en entropy from a variety of different passphrases, URLs, files. You know, you can derive uh, symmet um, symmetric keys from, from shared experiences and shared entropic input. But it also mm -hmm. makes use of asymmetric encryption too, primarily elliptic curve. And you can, you can modify and change all your encryption. So if you want to use a Koblitz curve, you know, basically uh, versus a, a, a traditional curve, like a, a SECP256, um, you know, R, R, uh, R curve, you can. Mm -hmm. um, you can choose the number of bits in your curve. Um, you can also choose to use a traditional safe prime based RSA for your asymmetric key derivation if you want. Um, but what's really cool about this is it's contact is designed around communications. Because the one thing we found with Demonsaw is if you cannot group together people and cannot communicate in groups, the product is almost worthless. If you look mm -hmm. at products that, um, that are popular right now, like Discord and Telegram, you know, these products are popular because they they take groups of people that otherwise would never know each other existed and they put them in a forum where they can communicate. Reddit, Telegram, uh, Facebook. These are all just grouping of people that were once unfamiliar with one each, from each other and putting them in, in groups where they can communicate freely for better or worse. Mm -hmm. Facebook being an example of worse. <laughs> Twitter, possibly worse as well. Um, but the problem with all these products is you have to trust the companies just like you and I have to trust the VPN providers. Yep. So Facebook, Twitter, Telegram, Discord, Reddit, these are all hosted centrally. You know, they, and you have to authenticate with a username and a password and an IP address and whatever. You, they collect our data and what do they do? They sell the data, they monetize it, they make money from it. Why can't you host your own Facebook server? Why doesn't Facebook allow you to download the Facebook code and put up your Philip Facebook? It has all the pages, but you control it because they'll no. never make money. They'll never make money. It's not in their business interest for you to do that. So contact like Demon. Isn't, isn't it a bit network effect as well as, you know, they're building up this brand that is trustable. Like, look at, if you look at Reddit, as a, they've published their entire code open source, but because they have, because they're like this brand, they're this stability that people right. choose to trust them. Yeah, it's uh, the, the people who most, well, this is one thing I've noticed in the, you know, I've, I've released over 100,000 lines of open source code. You know, Demonsaw 1, 2, and 3 has fully been open sourced under MIT license. Uh, 4 has not yet. You know, a lot of people are mad at me, but I don't care. I, but the first three demon saws are fully MIT. So anybody can go to github.com slash demon saw and look through all the code. So I, I've released a lot of open source, you know, but, mm -hmm. but I'm also, I also understand the value of intellectual property and, and, and the need to keep source closed. It, it, code Siren is a company that has investors. You know, we have people that gave me money so that I can mm -hmm. pay salaries. 
And so our code is closed source, but it's closed source just because that's the business model. So I've done both. I've done open source, I've done closed source projects. But what I've learned in the open source community is there's value in seeing code, but there's very few people who are capable of reviewing the code that's available from a security perspective. Yeah. So just because code, and, and we saw this with OpenSSL uh, you know, bugs a few years back, just mm -hmm. because code's open source does not mean it's safe. But at the same time, we can't argue against open sourcing code because how are you going to review 5 million lines of code? How are you yeah. going to review 50,000 lines of code like yeah. in Demonsoft? And nobody's going to do it. I mean, it's yeah, impossible. It's when you look at Reddit, yes, they've released all their code. Why don't people create their own versions of Reddit, myreddit.com? Well, because it costs money to get people using your app and yeah. it's easier. Effect. Network effect, exactly. The people that complain the most are the ones that would never host their own. And that's one thing I learned uh, about open source and closed source is the people that complain the most about one or the other are most likely not the people that your business is targeting or not the people that comprise the majority use cases. They may be very well right. You know, the, like I have people that uh, I have a handful of people that every now and then they, they get mad at me because I have an open source demon software, for and they're entitled to their opinion. They're not going to oh, sway. Yeah. yeah, they're not going to sway my decision one way or the other. Eventually, I'll do it. I don't know when they ask when I'm like, I don't know. I, I've got a company to run. I've got people to pay. I've got almost 10 people on staff. I'm paying, uh, you know, every week. Yep. That, that's a lot of work, a lot of money. It, and, and that's not why we do what we do. We want to create a product that allows people to have an alternative and meets a specific need. But to host it centrally like Facebook does or Telegram does or, or uh, Twitter does is, in my opinion, not solving the real problem. We need nodes that can be hosted by you and me. Like, yeah. there, why, why can't I produce an amazing app that you download on your phone and input your own server that you can go to for all of your Telegram use. Imagine having a Telegram-like product or a Discord-like product where DEFCONs can say, hey, we're gonna host uh, our own nodes, our federated node network, like, like what just happened with DEFCON. You know, it was, it was they, they basically had a, a bunch of Discord channels. And DEFCON said, hey, here's all Discord channels, join Discord. Well, how do you join Discord? Discord? You gotta choose a username and a password. Yeah. And you've got to sign into Discord. Already, you you know, fail. Yeah. Well, imagine if Discord, uh, if DefCon had the ability to host their own nodes that basically allowed them to uh, to have their own protected environment. Where at the end of their four days of DefCon, they pretty much purge everything. So there's no logs. There's there's nothing permanent. There's no privacy risk, and they control their usernames. That would be brilliant. But you know what that would do is that would put Discord out of business and that would put Telegram out of business because the value of Discord and Telegram and it is, is the underlying network technology, not their UI. Once they lose control of the infrastructure, they've lost control of the customer base and they're no longer valuable as a company. Yeah. And so that's what I'm trying to do with contact is I'm trying to put some pressure on the old guard, the telegrams, the discords, uh, the Skypes, the zooms and say, you know what? 
your days of controlling the wall garden and the network infrastructure are going to be over. What if we had a product that felt just like your products, allowed you to do video calling, VoIP, allowed you to do uh, uh, group conversations like Discord, but anybody could host their own environment and they could totally control the back end and, and you can't perma-ban people anymore. You know, one of the things that upsets me at Reddit is they can perma-ban you. Or yeah. just look at recently what Telegram did. You know, yeah. so Telegram, uh, or sorry, not Telegram, um, Twitter. Twitter, Twitter um, makes decisions on what information to show and what information to censor. So yeah. Twitter decides on its own to censor articles. Like an example we just saw with, um, actually just today, just today, uh, Glenn Greenwald, I don't know if you saw this, but Glenn Greenwald just quit The Intercept, which he co-founded. Oh, wow. Yeah, literally. I can uh, send, you, it's, uh, send you the link. He literally just quit today. So Glenn Greenwald created The Intercept after the, the Snowden um, documents and stuff as a, as a media outlet that is designed to be impartial and fair. You know, just yeah. report good news. Well, it turns out that The Intercept refused to publish a story that Glenn thought was newsworthy about Hunter Biden. So Biden's son, Joe Biden's okay. son, and his laptop scandal. So Glenn Greenwald, which by, by no means is he a conservative journalist, Glenn Greenwald, if anything, is a very uh, liberal-leaning journalist, yep. but he wanted to publish this article. He thought it was newsworthy, and The Intercept, his own company he founded, censored it. So he quit today. Censorship is a... Censorship is a big problem. People don't think it's such a big problem when the content that's censoring is what we don't believe in, right? Let's say you're a fan of Joe Biden and uh, Twitter decides to censor a potentially harmful article about Joe Biden. You may not actually feel offended by that. But as history has shown us, things quickly switch over time. And in four years or eight years or two years, you may very well be on the side that's being censored. Censorship, by definition, is hostile and only hurts people. And, and the more we censor, the less free of a society we live in. So Telegram, Discord, Reddit, Twitter, Facebook, Skype, all have the power to censor us by permabanding or shadow banning um, or just removing posts. If we had a competitor that allowed us to host our infrastructure and control our own censorship or not even be able to censor, imagine the world we'd live in. People would leave these centralized wall garden apps in droves and adapt the new uh, ecosystem of censor resistant or non-censorship platforms. Imagine a Twitter that says, hey, we're gonna be the new Twitter our policy is we're not going to censor anything unless it violates the law of the country that you're from or unless it violates the actual laws of the country where the servers are hosted. So, for example, in the United States, there are certain things that are illegal or not illegal. You know, um, it's illegal to drink if you're less than 21. Mm -hmm. So a post of a 14-year-old drinking is going to be illegal. But imagine if they only censored things that were blatantly outlawed. Or imagine this. 
Imagine a platform with no censorship whatsoever. Now, a lot of people get scared by this and they think, well, what about, you know, really, really internationally recognized illegal activities? Okay, so we could censor things that are internationally illegal, like terrorism or, you know, uh, certain types of pornography or certain things. So, so we could do that, but, but not running an article that could be harmful to a, a, a politician's campaign. You know, who gives Twitter the right to make that decision? And that's a very slippery slope. The only reason why Twitter has the power they have is because they control the servers. Yeah. We take away the control of the infrastructure and we take away the power of the big companies. And, and that, that is a scary thought for people who have power. Yeah, there's no one you can go to and pressure when there is not one person in control. So you can't call up the CEO of uh, this new service. Uh, right. Yeah. I mean, if, you know, it, it's a scary thought. It, it's a scary thought because without censorship, you know, there, there, there's content that is, is going to be dangerous. You know, there's, mm -hmm. uh, you know, there's, there's content that, especially depending on, on geographic, you know, I'll, I'll throw out one example. Um, you know, Holocaust related uh, stuff, you know, like Nazi Germany mm -hmm. is a great oh, example. Yeah. Um, in the U.S., there's a different sentiment toward the word Nazi than in Europe. In Europe, especially in Germany, it's a very sensitive topic. Yep. And people just don't talk about it at all. Like people are more comfortable just not. And it, it does make sense. Um, but, you know, that's a scary, scary topic. But, but the, the problem with censorship, if, if it's not censoring blatantly illegal stuff, the problem with censorship is we're relying on people, humans like you and me, to make decisions on behalf of others. And eventually we'll get that wrong. And the more dopamine we get, the more feeling of control and power we get, the more addictive it becomes. And it's just like that final scene in, in Lord of the Flies by William Golding, the book, yeah. where all the kids are on the island stranded. And within a few days, they revert into chaos and they kill each other and yeah. they fight. And then they're rescued by a warship of parents that come in, break them up. They take them, they put them on the ship, and then they sail back out to sea on a warship. So who's going to stop that warship from killing other people? And it's endless. It, it never stops. That's the problem is if we rely on, on human ability to censor and make decisions, we're eventually going to make a wrong decision and people are going to suffer. And that's what we're seeing right now with, with social media. Censorship can only result in an Orwellian, Orwellian society where people yeah. are abused and our rights are uh, diminished. So, so I'm trying to create software that prevents that. <laughs> All right, let's jump on. Let's jump on to another topic, which is uh, on the walls, and that is uh, your second DefCon talk. You uh, went up on the stage, and you and your current business partner <laughs> yeah. at the time begin the talk. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think you know who I'm referring to. 
yes um, so yes how my... did how did that relationship start and uh... yeah. yeah yeah that's a that's a good good question. so it's it was it was interesting um john mcafee which by the way i i i still like john mcafee you know i mean i'm, I'm not gonna i'm not gonna say i don't like him um I think at his soul, at his heart, John McAfee honestly believes in privacy. I, I really do. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe I'm naive. Maybe maybe I'm wrong. I think he strongly believes in privacy. I met him at a Hack Miami conference. So both he he and I were both speaking at a conference in in Miami, Florida, called Hack Miami. This mm-hmm. is a this was I guess four or five years ago now, and I met him there, and I pitched the idea of Demon Saw. And that's how mm-hmm. we kind of like we became friends and eventually business colleagues and worked together for a couple of years. And, and you know, for for a lot of that time, it was fine. You know, um, there was a time when uh, you know, John was still getting back on his feet. You know, he had just left Belize. He actually came in through through Miami, and a lot of the hackers in Miami helped him, which was mm-hmm. why he was very friendly to the Hack Miami convention because a lot of people helped get him back on his feet. He had lost almost all his wealth. He was poor. He was dirt poor when he arrived in Miami. Most people don't realize he had no money. Now, that's he had lost $100 million, be either the collapse of the economy in the U.S. in 2008. He had lost, he says, a lot of art in Belize. I don't know if he lost it all, but I think right. he lost so much that it changed his lifestyle. Because it's, it's really tough to tell with John. The, the thing about John is he's never telling you a full lie and he's never telling you the full truth. It, it's okay. very similar to a lot of the way that, that COINTELPRO um, CIA NSA activities go on. The best lie is one that's rooted in truth. And the, and the best truth is one that has lies in it. Because you can use that and, and control the narrative. And John was that way. He never told you the full truth or a full lie. And so he kept you guessing. And, you know, John is one of the ultimate Internet trolls. If you just look at his Twitter, I mean, you know, just just read some of his recent Twitters about some of the people he met in his Spanish prison where he is waiting extradition by the United States. You know, he talk about these uh, a variety of different drug dealers and inmates. None of these inmates are real. You know, none of these are real. John didn't actually meet any of these in prison. These are concoctions of his mind to try to paint a funny story. He's trolling the internet. So, so he's being held for, for those of your listeners who don't, who don't know what's going on. He got arrested in Spain, uh, couple, I guess, two, three weeks back now. And he's being held uh, for extradition to the U.S. on mm-hmm. two counts. Um, one is tax evasion. Uh, mm-hmm. And another is pumping and dumping a cryptocurrency without revealing his intentions to the people. So basically lying about selling securities to the U.S. government. If he's convicted of both of these on all counts, he'll serve 30 years in prison. He's a 75, 74, 75 year old man now. Hmm. I don't know how many years he has left, but he'll, he, I doubt he'll be convicted on all the accounts, but you never know. You know? So mm-hmm. he's being held there and He's probably being held in solitary. He's probably not being kept in a prison with dangerous individuals. So what John does is John trolls. But I met I so so that's I mean, that's just who he is. That's always who will be. Take it or leave it. That's that's John. But John is a privacy advocate. You know, he loves privacy and he believes in a free Internet. 
the the problem with John is, um, you know, John is John is John is torn between his love for privacy and advocating for a better world, and his personal ambitions and uh, and greed, and you know, John John sold his share in McAfee for a hundred million dollars, and tried a variety of ventures and businesses and failed at many of them. And I think John is continuously striving to get back where John needs to be. He needs to be the most popular person in the room. He, he needs the spotlight on him. And I think, I think what holds John back is he's constantly struggling to get back in that place where he can feel relevant and even be relevant. We talked about the imposter complex and we talked about yeah. being slaves of our own pride and ego. I think John fits into that mold. But, you know, unlike some of us, you know, John has given into that. Uh, and, and so John is, you know, John, John has walked down a dark path and, and, and he is he's made decisions that result in him um, giving in. Uh, to uh, to him himself these, these these yeah exactly temptations, and uh, but things were things were pretty good with John for a while. Um, he was trying to mentor, you know, he was trying to help me promote Demon Saw, but it never got off the ground because John was always <laughs> John was always a, a prisoner of, of himself, and and John John would always do crazy stuff like. Uh, you know, uh, how to uninstall McAfee antivirus videos, running for president twice, you know, all, the, all these things that John would do. And, and their men is a joke. Their men is trolling. But the problem is they were so outlandish that nobody knows when he's not trolling. And, you know, nobody knows when he's sincere. I've had conversations where he sincerely talks about the future and the, the, the bad future that we're all trending to and heartfelt conversations where he is sober and he is concerned and those were genuine conversations but then the next thing is you know he's 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 high on on some drug partying with four women and so yeah. the the problem is people have trouble separating the honest and the real and genuine from the crazy man and at some point in time they blend into one and i think that's where we see him now is he's kind of a combination of both extremes and you can't trust that you can't trust a person who cannot um separate. cannot keep their yeah cannot yeah. keep their darkness at bay and cannot separate those and 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 has no self-control to distinguish between the two extremes and, and that's why it didn't work out with me uh, because uh, i needed a business partner that i could rely on and i needed i needed somebody like me Somebody who, you know, you can party if you want, you know, you, you can do crazy stuff if you want, but there has to be a time when you're, when you're sober and you're serious and you're focused yep. and you get work done. And if you don't have that and you don't know when that time is, you can't rely on the person and, and you have to break off ties. And, and that's, and that's where he and I came down to that. Uh, and I broke off ties and, uh, you know, I did not give in to the, the temptations that he did. And I refused to. And like I said, was it ego? Was it pride? Possibly. Like, I, I think um, if I'm going to succeed in life, I'm going to succeed for the right reasons. And, uh, and if I can't succeed legitimately, then I have no right to succeed. I would rather succeed legitimately 
I'd rather fail than succeed in an illegitimate way. But that's my personality. And, and John was not that way. So it didn't work out, uh, suffice it to say, from a business standpoint. But like I tell a lot of people, John's a lot of fun at parties. <laughs> he's, he's, he's a, he, there will never be another person like John McAfee again. When he finally leaves this earth, we're going we're gonna to lose a very unique person. Um, but I, I also don't necessarily think, uh, you know, John's not necessarily an inspiration. I think if he is an interesting person, and, and I think that's a good way to leave it. He's an interesting person. I think he could have been great. I, I think he could have been brilliant. I think he could have been an Elon Musk or Steve Jobs, but I think he just made the wrong decisions. You know, and, and maybe to be fair to John, maybe he is exactly what he always was meant to be. You know, maybe this John McAfee we got is exactly the John McAfee, the only one he could have been and the one that the world needed because he's unique, but he's not the right business partner for me. And as we've seen many times, he's not the right business partner for anybody he goes in business with. <laughs> you can look back the last few years, every company he went in business with, it ended poorly. You know, it ended and the, the privacy coin to the secure phone to, you know, you name it, you know, everything John has done has been a pump and a dump and there's no stability, you know, um, and sincerity requires stability without stability. It's impossible to have sincerity and, and, and honesty. And I think if nothing else, when people judge me, they need to look at the fact that demon still there. You know, I'm still here. Uh, I'm still promoting the same message. You know, people still like me <laughs> for, for whatever reason. They still want to talk to me. Um, you need that stability. And, and, and otherwise, you, there's no legitimacy to the message. Um, it doesn't mean I'm always right. I make a lot of mistakes. But it, it means I'm human. And it means I'm trying to create something better. And that's, you know, that's what I'm working on now with Code Siren. That's what I worked on with Demon Saw. That's what I worked on with Rockstar. That's why I talk at DEF CON. You know, that's why I do what I do. Um, we're creating something that will help people. And um, do you that's think, what the world needs. Do you think you will ever sit down and say, now I've provided enough value so I can just be happy now? Or do you think it's chasing rainbows? Never done. That's a great question. That's a speaking of a, a Buddhist Zen moment. That's a great. That's your that's your most Buddhist Zen question of the of the afternoon. Um, I hope not. I hope not. And here's why. Um, mm -hmm. Selfishly, it would be wonderful. But I hope not because my greatness stems from my greatness stems from my feeling of not having achieved what I'm here to achieve. So the, the continual inadequacy is what my greatness stems from. And without the feeling that I haven't pushed hard enough or run fast enough or done enough work, without that feeling that I'm not quite here yet, I would not be great. And if I am to live a life of happiness or a life of greatness, I mean, there, 
their extremes, right? Uh, I don't think I can be happy and also be great. And I think that's my internal conflict. And, um, and, and to be honest, happiness is boring. <laughs> well, yeah, happiness is boring. Like, I think people should be happy. I, I think the majority of people should be happy. Um, but I could not achieve what I want to achieve if I'm content and happy. And I think for me, I would feel like I'd waste time. Uh, but I wish happiness on everyone else and they can have my fair share as well. But yeah, what drives me, what drives me is, is, is the, uh, the untrodden path. Uh, what drives me is the new worlds yet to be explored. What drives me is how could I, a programmer in Rockstar, create Demon Saw that literally violates the firewall rules established by the great, you know, by China and the Chinese officials, like on a whim. Like, you know, I've had Palo Alto create firewall rules specifically for Demonsoft. So if, if any one of your listeners have a Palo Alto firewall, there is a rule written just for me, which, by the way, I never intended Demonsoft's protocol to, to, you know, to, to, to literally bypass firewall rules. Um, there's a bunch of code that's commented out that, that will circumvent the Palo Alto firewall, but I haven't uncommented it yet. Um, so so I, I wrote code expecting Palo Alto to write firewalls against Demonsolve, but I never uncommented it. <laughs> um, but that's just the hacker in me preparing for the inevitable. Um, but yeah, the, the life's too short, I think, to, to be happy. Um, my work makes me happy. Uh, helping people makes me happy. Um, maybe one day, uh, Philip, maybe one day after my fingers can no longer code, my Cherry MX Blue keyboard is broken, uh, you know, my, my computer's cores don't run as, as cool as they used to be. Maybe one day, um, but, but I don't know. We'll have to see, you know, we'll have to see how the world goes. Totally. Totally. All right. <laughs> Let's jump into uh, the last segment of the podcast. It's called Quick Questions. Let's get okay. some quick questions to get to know you better. What's your Excellent. favorite drink? Coffee. Black coffee. Black coffee, right. no cream, no sugar, just black. Uh, espresso mix, actually. Espresso mix. Okay, next question. When do you feel the most happy in your week? Oh, hmm. Gosh, that's a really good question. Um, I mean, obviously, obviously achieving a big uh, coding goal, right? You know, yeah. finish up a big thing that usually took multiple days. Uh, just getting it done, um, especially when the day before you didn't know how you're going to do it. You know, I think I think that makes me happy. Also, I really do enjoy a fresh pot of coffee early in the morning. There's something oh, special man. about that moment. <laughs> totally. What's your favorite outside activity? I like running. I like running. Running is my favorite. I'm the big runner. Um, just no headphones, just go and just my thoughts. Yep. Awesome. What's your favorite IDE or text editor? Uh, definitely Visual Studio. A lot of a lot of people will cringe at that. They'll be like, "What?" No, Vi Visual Studio is is. I love it. I love it. Yes, it's a Microsoft product, and that may upset people, but it, it's it's the best IDE in the world. Um, even Sony uses it, and they don't like Microsoft at all. So absolutely, it's. 
Uh, it's not command line. If you're a VI person, you're never going to love a GUI. But for me, Visual Studio is, is so so easy to debug. It's it's just it just makes life easy. I love it. Yeah. How does your workflow look like when you're gonna start your day? You're gonna boot up your computer and do work. Uh, how does your workflow look like, and what do you do? Um, so what I what I try to do is I try to divide days, in, you know, not have days overlap. That, that's the that's the first thing. Like we mentioned before, I try not to end a day on a negative. If I know I'm about to start a really big task, I'll try to start it first thing in the morning. But I, I try not to overlap because I like to go to bed on a very positive note. And otherwise, I'll be tossing and turning all night. And I'll be dreaming of, you know, it's not good. But usually what I do is I wake up in the morning, morning in quotes. I usually get, I usually, I usually stay up to like, four, five, four, five in the morning is usually, I know. Um, so, <laughs> so I've, yeah, I usually get up around 11 or even noon some days, but I always get up before noon because I figure I have to get up in the morning. That's my job as a human is I have to at least be up in the quote unquote morning. Um, then what I do is I, I make a pot of coffee. Uh, I think about what's on my plate for the day. I drink a cup or two of coffee as I'm kind of assessing. Usually I look at what team members checked in. I sync to their code. I look at any comments or questions they have. They're stuck. I respond to that right away. So as I'm drinking coffee, I kind of ramp up. Very easy tasks. And then about 20, 25 minutes into the day, then I, I open up the IDE and I look, at, I look at my list of tasks. So as a team, we use Trello. And Trello is a very easy way of doing project management for small teams. So I usually look at my bulleted list of tasks and my Trello tasks, and I go through and I say, okay, what's the highest priority task that I want to do, and how do I want to approach it? Sometimes I'll start the day with an e one or two quick, easy wins, you know, 15, 20-minute bugs, just, just to get, get the mind woken up, because it takes me usually about a half an hour to wake up with coffee. And then after that, I'll go into some deeper bugs. I find that I work best usually right around mid-afternoon to about 10 p.m. So my sweet spot for programming, you know, waking up at noon, is usually right around 4 to 7, 8, 9, 10 p.m. That's when I'm most efficient. And then I usually find myself waking up again around 2 in the morning. So um, 2 in the morning, if I'm up programming at 2, usually I'm firing on all cylinders. So there's, there seems to be a lull for me between like 8 and midnight, um, where I'm, I'm not as efficient. So I try to eat dinner, take breaks, um, or stop working at midnight. And then uh, I try to give myself between two and four hours, between midnight and four, between midnight and two, where I can kind of have some downtime. So for me, I, I either play a video game, watch some Netflix, watch some movies, <laughs> some stuff I downloaded from Demon Saw. Just, just kind of, I need to give myself at least two hours to mentally take a break from code. Um, okay. And that's usually between midnight and two or midnight and four, depending on how interesting the show is. Some, if I'm watching a TV show, sometimes I'll go to four, five, six in the morning. But no matter what time I go to bed, I always wake up before noon. So if I go to bed at six in the morning, I always wake up before noon. If I go to bed at four, I wake up at noon. Um, so I force myself to get up before the afternoon. Okay. I, I know it's a programmer paradise. It's like, it's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> you, you must be super productive. Yeah. I mean, it, it depends on the day, but you know, I mean, um, it's when you run your own company and you're responsible ultimately for what you're producing, 
and everybody's looking up to you, uh, you have to produce, right? Yeah. You, ha you have to produce. Um, have doesn't to mean doesn't mean every day is a productive day, but you have to overall be productive. Yeah, something I noticed uh, getting uh, actually running a software company is that you have to actually always like mentally be there and always like be this stable pillar that people can uh, rely upon. Yep. Well, as I mean, now I'm in the role of a CEO, but I'm also the the principal programmer. So I, I am the highest ranking software engineer in the company. You know, my company has fewer than 10 people. It's a pretty small company still, but when they get stuck, I have to unstuck them. And doesn't matter what it is. And it doesn't matter if I've ever done code like this before. Um, I have to do it. You know, just, just the other day, I had to write a, uh, a, a shader, an OpenGL shader using, you know, frag and vert files. I, hmm. I'm not a graphics programmer. You know, I was an engine programmer. I did some yeah. graphics related tasks at Rockstar, but, you know, I am, I am not a guy who writes frag and vert files and, and writes shaders or materials for shaders. I've never been a graphics programmer doesn't matter you got to do it and so you find a way to make it happen uh, but that's what makes a senior programmer a senior programmer because even though we haven't done something we still have the ability to figure it out and get it done and nothing's impossible when you have 10 20 years behind you it's just a matter of how much work do you need to put into it mm -hmm. totally what's your favorite uh, c++ compiler uh, you know, I, I'm going to cheat on this question and give you a couple. So right, right now I use three, uh, mm -hmm. every day I compile with three compilers. I use MSVC, I use uh, GCC and I use CLang, uh, or Clang, depending on how yeah. you want to pronounce it. Um, my favorite one is probably for the ability of the compiler to create optimized code is, is definitely Microsoft Visual Studio, MSVC. It's, it has got the best algorithms for creating the tightest and fastest code. Um, but my favorite compiler for showing potential bugs is, is uh, CLang. Um, okay. Clang is so, Clang highlights things that MSVC ignores that are very, very helpful. And, are problematic. Uh, GCC is somewhere in between, but uh, you know GCC is because Linux. Um, so as you can imagine, CLang we use for Android and for OS X, and uh, GCC is used for Linux, and MSVC is used for Windows. So why do we use three? Well, they all have their benefits, and to be honest, it's important to take your code and make sure it's it's compliant on multiple compilers. So every day I compile on, on uh, well, every day I compile at least on CLang and MSVC. GCC I use whenever I'm building Linux modules, which are, are usually the nodes. So hmm. all the nodes, obviously the preferred way of running any sort of server side or node-based component is Linux, and it will always be that way. Um, so yeah, we do all three, uh, but I like each in for different reasons. Good answer. What's your favorite song or band? Oh, boy. Well, I mean, gr growing up, I think my favorite band was probably Van Halen. Uh -huh. um, and, yeah. And, you know, recently Eddie Van Halen passed away, which was super sad. You know, he 
passed away from cancer. Um, I saw him once in concert and actually I saw him in concert when, uh, when he, when their lead singer, uh, singer was uh, Gary Sharon. <laughs> so mm. it, it is notoriously the worst album that I saw in concert. But uh, <laughs> right now, my favorite, my favorite band is probably Steel Panther, um, mm. wh which is going to sound kind of odd if people don't know. So Steel Panther is a, it's a U.S. based band that um, they are a, I wouldn't call them a cover band, but they are a they, they pretend to be an 80s hair band. It's uh, S-T-E-E-L-P-N-A-T-H-E-R. But okay. they pretend to be an 80s hair band. But musically, they're some of the most talented musicians I've ever heard. Like the quality of their music is is better than all of the bands in the 80s. Like they're, they're at the top. Like they are so They are musically as talented as any other musician in the world. But their songs are really they're a comedy band so their songs are comedic and mm -hmm. they sing about uh things that are not necessarily politically correct but they're okay but the, the humor in the songs it's it's a weird it's a weird mixture of the musicality and the raw talent of this band everything from the singer to the guitar player if you just hear some of their songs it is is cutting edge brilliant but yet the lyrics are so comically funny and are so are, are so non-politically correct like if a real if, if a serious band wrote songs the way that steel panther does they would be shunned but they become successful because their raw talent and their willingness to say some outrageous things um so i appreciate them for their abilities their talent but i also appreciate them for the boldness and that's kind of like me as a hacker and a programmer is, is um you know um fortune favors the bold and they are extremely bold, probably too bold in some of their songs. But I, I find listening to them satisfying uh, because I laugh. And I also find it satisfying because their their talent is very impressive. So, you know, I, I guess, you know what, if, if, if you can, if you could acknowledge that if you can be talented, but you can also entertain and you can also make people happier, it's not a bad, it's not a bad work day, right? Yeah, it's many talents into one. Yeah, so but just fair. so you know, some of your listeners may very well find some of their songs offensive, um, but but it's it is all a joke. So some may not. Who knows? But yeah, they're my favorite band right now. Cool. How do you do package management? How do you make sure all your systems stays up to date and happy? Yeah. So so that that's that's tricky. Um, there's so that this, because our code base is like right now the the code base of contact is is well in excess of demon saw i haven't done a k-lock analysis but i expect it somewhere around probably 75 70 75 000 lines of code i mean it's, it's getting pretty big it has everything when we write open gl code like all of our all of our complex rendering is done on the gpu now um which is unprecedented um you know we we are a um we use primarily C++, uh, but all of our UI and UX is in uh, QML, so which is hmm. you know by Q QT. Um, but we do we do a lot of performance tweaking, uh, and we use the GPU pretty extensively, which is really unique. We do a lot of things that a, a game engine and a gaming company would do. Mm -hmm. uh, we have an MVC pattern. In fact, all of our engine is designed around an entity component framework. 
So um, this, this, it's it really our our code is really a game engine is the best way to describe it, which is is not happenstance because you know I spent seven years making video games with Rockstar mm -hmm. and Activision, but our entire engine is really a game engine. It uses the entity component framework, so everything is an entity and everything can have attached components. But uh, it, it's we use the GPU as much as we can. We're completely multi-threaded, so we everything's constantly using threads. We use SQLite database where we need to. We use UDP and TCP network calls. You know, we're very focused on on fast and efficient. Um, you know, we use OpenSSL and Crypto Plus Plus for our cryptographic engines. Hmm. Um, but keep, keeping everything in line is tough because when you're building on Android and Linux and Windows, um, you can't move too fast. You can't always be on the cutting edge of upgrades because yeah. you'll break you'll break more junior programmers. Um, it's just something as simple as as upgrading to a new version of OpenSSL. I'll just give you that as an example. Mm -hmm. Okay, first of all, you know, say OpenSSL comes out. It's, it's important to upgrade, right? It's important to upgrade because that's cryptographically very important. But to do that, I have to compile from source on Windows, Android, and uh, Linux. So I have to compile from source on three libraries. Or I have to use pre-built binaries, which is a super no-no in the security industry. So, you know, you know so you really have to compile from source. And the Windows build pipeline for OpenSSL is completely different than the cross-compile that you need to do for Android. Um, and then and, and you got to deal with 64-bit Android versus Android's 32-bit. Uh, uh, um, so you've got, you've got to build 32, 64 Android. Then you've got to build on Linux, probably 64-bit only, on something like Deb 10. Then you've got to build Windows. So you literally have four build pipelines just for an OpenSSL library. So suffice it to say, OpenSSL is not upgraded every single time a, a minor or a patch version comes out. It's just too impossible. Um, same thing goes with like upgrading uh, Qt. The Qt framework changes. Upgrading Qt has to is is going to change the entire pipeline because the Android build, the Linux build, the Windows build, they can break in different places. And not only that. Qt is notoriously known for breaking things in some of their minor upgrades. Um, just recently, the camera function on Android broke. <laughs> so mm -hmm. with a minor upgrade in, I think it was, uh, uh, was it uh, 5.15, I think upgrading to 5.14 or 5.15, broke Android camera. Just broke it. You couldn't even use it because the, uh, um, I think the render buffer was was flawed. Or mm -hmm. just something like so. So when we do upgrade, when we do patch, we do it intelligently, we do it planned, and we're a small company. And we try not to upgrade more than every three months. Usually it's right around like internal launch cycles where I got a good week free. So you never upgrade right before build, <laughs> never, <Yeah>. ever, <laughs> ever, ever. It, you know, it doesn't matter how daring you are. Usually I give myself a week if I want to upgrade after we do a final build. And I say, okay, this week I'm going to look at upgrading XYZ. And then we give ourselves seven days. That way, if we need to roll back, we can. But the biggest challenge for upgrading isn't even all this. The biggest challenge for upgrading is getting all your programmers on the same page because that mm -hmm. costs time and money. So yeah. if you have five programmers, upgrading yourself is easy. 
but upgrading those five programmers to the newest version of Qt requires them to uninstall the old version, them to reinstall the new version, them to do a clean build and a rebuild all um, on both Android and Windows, um, assuming nothing goes wrong. They could have the wrong NDK, they could have the wrong Android SDK, they could have to reinstall their AVDs for emulation, and now I have to deal with that. So if any one of them breaks, they're no longer productive for hours. And I, a lot of my programmers are in Europe. So I've got programmers in Europe. I've got employees here in the U.S. So if they break and they're six, seven, eight hours ahead of me, they could potentially have nothing done in a day. So I lose one day of their time. Plus, now I have to help them through. So that costs me an hour, half an hour, two hours, whatever it takes me to fix them and get them unstuck. So the company could lose days worth of productivity. So you got to plan and you've, you've got to take it easy and you got to be very, very careful about what you upgrade <laughs> and patch always. And that's just for less than 10 employees. Uh, once we have 20 or 30 employees, you know, you're talking about maybe upgrades every 12 months. You're talking about maybe biannual or annual upgrades instead. Um, hmm. Now, patching the nodes is much easier, right? Patching Linux, you know, installing, you know, new versions of dev when they come out, all that is fine for de deployment. But upgrading any like programmers workstations or emulation devices, um, virtual box instances, all that is painful. The more people you add, the exponentially more complicated any change uh, takes. And that has, just has to be budgeted and planned. Totally. Next question. What's your favorite karaoke song to sing at karaoke? Oh, gosh. Oh, so, um, you know, I I kind of like, yeah, I'm a big fan of 80s hair bands, you know, yeah. uh, just, just because I, I just, I don't know, there's something, there's something freeing about a grown man with long hair, wearing spandex singing about <laughs> girls uh it just i don't know there's something freeing about that so i i think my my favorite karaoke song if i had to sing one at like next defcon or something it would definitely be cherry pie by warrant so nice. warrant is a hairband for the age cherry pie it's just it's got a everything it's funny like steel panther it has innuendos yeah. it's it's comically brilliant it's got an amazing riff. It's like the intro is just everything about it screams rock and roll. And yet at the same time, it's not overly offensive, but you can't help but smile when you listen to that song, especially considering the outrageous lyrics. It's just a fun song and it'd be a great drinking song to do with karaoke. And, and it's, it's very widely recognizable. So everyone can sing along as well. It, exactly, especially the chorus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. All right. What's the latest book you read? What is the latest book I read? Um, so, we're, well, I'm, I'm reading one right now. Uh, I haven't finished it yet, but I'm reading one right now called The Day After Roswell. Uh, mm. It is The Day After Roswell. It's, it's a book. I, I, I like watching ancient aliens. You know, I like alien theories and stuff. It, it's a book written by... Um, a, a, a gentleman named Bill Barnes or William mm -hmm. Barnes. And it is basically supposedly about the true story of one of the Air Force officers and his account of what happened the day after Roswell. 
And it basically is the true story of this guy and his involvement in the cover-up with uh, the Roswell crash. And it's about how the army, you know, how it was announced that there was a crash, you know, if you believe it or not. And then about the army deciding, no, 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 let's not tell the public the truth. You know, let's, let's hide it up and claim it was a weather balloon. And it's a book about what happened and what led up to that and really what transpired as a result of the cover-up and how the government got away with it and what's happened as the results. And, and, and basically it was, it was the first, it was one of the very first mainstream censorship examples of the US government. And ever since that, the government's uh, continued to kind of apply censorship and, and not only the government, but you know, companies in general, like we see with Twitter and others. And it, but it was the first mainstream example of a government's extreme censorship cover-up initiative and i find it fascinating to 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 learn that we had to teach ourselves how to lie and how to deceive in mass and that's that's if you think about it that's that's pretty interesting to know that humans did not have that sort of mass deceit as part of our nature you know, we had some deceit as our nature, but mass deceit and cover-up was something we had to learn and teach ourselves. That's interesting if you think about that. So it's a fascinating book. Whether you believe in alien conspiracies or not, just learning about the human psyche and how we learned to deceive on a large scale. Uh, and now we're really good at it. It reminds me about another, uh, another book that my friend who works at uh, Kaspersky the antivirus software recommended called, it's called the art of disinformation. Oh. And uh, it's about how, uh, how like it plays it, it says it's pretty funny. It's uh, that you think, if you think companies are good at placing disinformation and manipulating people, imagine just how government's been doing it for thousands of years and just training up the techniques. <laughs> yep, exactly. I it really, I mean, the, it, it's an art. It's a, it's a beautiful art. Um, and, you know, COINTELPRO, deception, manipulation, like, uh, sadly, you know, people are, people are tricked all the time, you know, um, see that with John McAfee, we see that. And like we talked about before, it's, it's tempting. It's, it's something that sways a lot of people one way or the other. It's, it's very dangerous and, uh, but it's very real. So we have gone through this uh, journey now. Is there anything we missed that you think uh, that you want to highlight or cover? Uh, I mean, we, we, we did a great job. I, I, think, I think the most, the only thing I'd really end with, I'd say, is that, you know, you know, over the past years, I've been a strong advocate for privacy and, you know, personal liberty and freedoms. Uh, mm -hmm. Whether whether you're a hacker or a technologist or a programmer or whether you have none of those skill sets, whether you're just you know college student or or you know I don't know well flip burgers for a living, whatever you do. But I I think the most important thing for people to know is that you know this has been a five year journey for me. Um, I uh, <clears throat> I resigned five years ago from Rockstar, uh, the best job I ever had until my current job, which, you know, there's no better job than running your own company and being your own yeah. boss, but, but that's also the hardest job. But, but I, I think people need to understand that I set out on this mission five years ago to figure out how to create technology that would advocate personal liberty and freedom and privacy. 
And I tried a couple of different things and some, some worked and some didn't, but this has been an ex exploration on my part for five years. And, and the journey is, is not even half over. And so this next, this next company, you know, Code Siren, my current company is just the next iteration in that. Now I know what I wish I knew five years ago. You know, I'm a better programmer. I'm a better CEO. Uh, I'm better at raising money. I'm better at hiring teams. But it's a journey, just like anything in life. You need time to learn. And where we're at right now as a company is very exciting. And the future is going to be creating a very, very, very cool code, and very, very cool projects and, and apps that I think people are going to really enjoy. And although Demon Saw was the start of 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 this you know i think what's coming up uh is uh is far greater and far more powerful so so i encourage people to to check out codesiren.com and uh you know i'm still on twitter at at uh, demon underscore saw uh, but there's a lot of cool things coming in 2021 and uh we're we're launching a product in 2021 that i that i think is going to really excite people so i'm excited Hopefully you guys are excited and uh, feel free to reach out to me. You and another thing, if, if you want to shoot me off an email, you guys can always reach out to me at Eja. That's E-I-J-A-H at demonsaw.com. And my PGP key is on the MIT key store in case you want it super secure. Uh, or you can hit me up on demon underscore saw on Twitter or, uh, or, you know, um, check me out on any of these podcasts. <laughs> I'm there too. Totally. It was so much fun having you on this episode. And thank you so much for doing this. And it's been an absolute pleasure having you on. And we got to meet in uh, in real life after this COVID stuff is done. Absolutely. Thank you, Philip, so much. I appreciate it. And uh, I'll be at DEF CON next year. So uh, if you're out or any of your followers or your uh, listeners are out at DEF CON, make sure they hit me up. I'll grab a beer with them or uh, who knows, maybe a quart of Guinness. If we're in Edinburgh, anything's possible. Yeah, the future awaits. <laughs> the future awaits. Awesome, man. Hey, thank you so much. Take care. Thank you. Enjoy the rest of your day. Bye. Bye.